Coming up next, the bookening reads Moby Dick. This is nice. It's very nice. Real nice. Sets the sets the mood. It does. Yes, yes, it does. Hey, everybody! <sighs> Welcome to a very special episode of the Bookening. You won't want to put pause on this episode. We're discussing quite the tale today. Pause. An, an what? un what pa- fur gettable. <laughs> In the world. Tail. <laughs> You'll want to throw us a bone, people, because we are discussing Moby Dick, and we could not be more excited. My name is Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host of The Bookening. We've got Brandon Chastine, the scholar who's a baller of reading right there. Hey, guys. Hey, Brandon. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. Yep. <laughs> My name is Frailty, and also Brandon. It's possible that... <laughs> Warhorn Media has purchased a new soundboard that actually enables me the function that I've always needed, nay, deserved of a DJ board. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. I love it, Nathan. We're not putting the sound effect in afterwards, folks. It's just frailty, thy name just now. He's got a little button. It was. I've got a little button. It was one of the first. Little button. (laughs) I've got a little button. (laughs) Last time we did that, I actually had that pulled up on my phone and held my phone to my microphone. Right. And that is how that got into back in the old analog days. But Uh, we're so much more sophisticated now. Yeah. No longer do we have to go through those antiquated methods. No, we just press a button and it says Frailty, thy name is Brandon. Yeah. It's it's happened, people. We have moved into the twenty first (laughs) century. That's exactly right. And speaking of the 21st century, there's a man who exemplifies the 21st century. He is the 21st century, made flesh. And Brandon, you're about to introduce that man, I do believe. Well, I believe I can't give a better introduction than that. I am a horror to all who know me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Permanent scream on his face. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like an Edvard Monk (laughs) painting. (laughs) But we still don't know who he is or what he does. My name's Jake. Hey, Brandon. Hey. I I seem to get the impression that Nathan thinks Moby Dick is a dog. Uh, Yeah, I do too. Or a cat, which we do have a cat at our house named Moby. Really? He said, throw it a bone. Oh, yeah. You don't throw a cat a bone. You can. Uh, Did you read this book, Nathan, or did you accidentally (laughs) read like Old Yeller? (laughs) It is another book with a color in the name. (laughs) What? Oh yeah, never mind. <laughs> the white whale. Yeah, but that's not. Yeah, that's not in the name. Never mind. I give up. I'm out. I mean, maybe there I is. It. I is, is this it. one of those novels from that era that have a big, long, like the official title it has a is actually secondary title, Moby Dick or the, the Pursuit whale. for the White or the Whale? whale. Yeah, or the whale. whale. Okay, that's all it is. I I, I just completely dropped the Frailty, joke. Name I ruined it. Like I ruined everything. <laughs> Frailty, thy name is Brandon. I was playing around with what else. I, I, I I'm love not, that little apple bite. Yeah, the, the apple the, bite is always goals. what makes it. Yeah. I also created this one. Brandon is fat. 
but <laughs> I, I don't think it's quite there. It's a work in progress. I hope you get it's that a, one. It's a little, it's a little yeah. strong baddie for my taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it needed a few more. Not your greatest work. Not my greatest work, but, you know, I, I can just push the button and it happens. Royalty That's hilarious. <laughs> well, guys, I'm we're, so glad you have that. <laughs> <laughs> guys, we're here in the studio today to discuss a book about a, a big fish, Moby Dick. We sure are. <laughs> and it's a large book, too. You know, if you hadn't uh, jumped in there, we could have reached over and pressed the crickets button that I'm sure he has. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Everybody's icing Jake for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad we're doing this outside, by the way, guys. <laughs> uh, right. The yeah. only thing that I, I didn't, I wanted to program one of those air horns, you know, eh, 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 I was wondering if you were going to pull that out. But they, they actually, this thing came with a whole bank of sound effects and it had every one of those obnoxious DJ sound effects, but I have not figured out how to access both those sound effects and my pre-programmed, like the ones that I want to do, like that Brandon. one, at the same time. So hopefully by next episode of The Bookening, I will be able to access standard rim shots and and stuff like that and... Also, frailty, thy name is Brandon. I have faith in you, Nathan. I think you'll get it done. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. Hey, what's that sound? Okay, well, oh. not, not a very impressive one. Let's try that again. <laughs> what's that sound? There we go. Better, yeah. That was a little bit a better. little bit better. A little just... bit better. Here, let's try this. Maybe I'll just uh, jack up the volume a little bit. What's that sound? It's the sound of the six shooters going off, indicating the contextual Texan. Brandon's from Texas, and he I provides much-needed context on this work. Today we are... Hey, can we just say, before we get going about this book, this is probably one of the best books we've read on the bookening. Can I we, agree. Can yeah, we, we can can totally it. agree with that. Can we yeah. just lead with that? Yeah, I, it's the only book that I've read that has made me feel like I could make a comparison to Tolstoy. Yeah, yeah, and, and and by the end of it, it's not Tolstoy, but man, he's really good. Well, and there's something to be said for a novel that's so ambitious that it cannot, in fact, it, it actually fulfill all of its ambitions. There's no way. I, I don't think there's any way the climax of this novel is going to deliver on everything that he's set up. And I just think that that's baked into trying to write the biggest grandest anyway we can talk about it but right now we we hear the sound of the six shooters going off indicating the segment we call the contextual texan part of the show where brandon who is from texas provides some much needed context for this work after letting out a hail and hearty i thought maybe you had it programmed in there <laughs> no, no that's, that's still me yeah Yeehaw! <laughs> I mean, I could. I guess I could. Pro you want yeah. to program your context too? Just sure. hit a button. Yeah, and just let it play. <laughs> just let it play. I'll write it up, and then you can just like press a button. And we'll get one of those rope. We'll have Siri yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Brandon's going to provide some much-needed context on Herman Melville, who had a fascinating life. He did. And Moby Dick. We're not going to talk about all his life. We're going to talk about his life up to Moby Dick. Okay. Well, that's the fascinating part, isn't it? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he kind of just, after Moby Dick, he just fell into melancholy and depression and ended up dying. <laughs> yeah. So well, I mean, you you did it. Right. What's yeah, well, he did it, but he didn't realize he had done it based on, well, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. 
Well, he's in the shadow of Nathaniel yeah, shadow. Hawthorne, mm. at least yeah. in his own mind. Yeah, and in the minds of some of the critics too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All the, the, in the, the minds of Brendan Gleeson in that amazing movie. Oh, bro, boy! What movie? The stupid uh, uh, Ron Howard the depth, movie. Depths in the heart. The depths in the, in the heart. The, in the heart. My of heart the will sea. go on. What? I will go on. Jack, this is where we first met. <laughs> Titanic? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no, was, uh, Ron Howard made like poll. a fake, here's the story of Moby Dick stripped of all its wonder. I think, I think that was the subtitle. <laughs> what? Yeah, so, so Ron Howard made a movie uh-huh. about the Essex. Oh, I didn't realize that. And it's framed as Melville, played by Ben Whishaw, okay. goes to one of the lone survivors of the Essex. Uh-huh played by Brennan Gleeson, and, and gets the story out of him of the Essex in his research for Moby Dick. Yeah. So it's the true story. Of Moby Dick. Of, of, of Moby Dick. And so... I mean, there is some Yeah, I just made a dumb, I made a dumb reference to a really horrible movie. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's in the same genre of like Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, where it's like, here's the real story of how Robin Hood didn't have any glory or adventure and was just dark and dank and medieval and horrible. It's just like one of those kinds of, actually I haven't seen it. So, but, but it just feels like looking at it, the the whole premise is flawed. I don't know if it was the, was it the captain of the Essex that he ended up just becoming like a watchman in Nantucket? And then Melville did go and talk to this guy. So the, the, at least the story as told in the so so the Essex is uh, all I know is is the Ron Howard movie that I went and saw because I just wanted to see some Moby Dick sure. style glory. Is this recent movie? No, it's no. I didn't go and see it in oh. theaters. I I made it sound that way, but no, I I rented it or actually I watched it on Hulu with ads because so I didn't want to pay for it. Went to your living room. I went to my living room. I sat down <laughs> and I watched in the heart or into the heart of. So the in sea. the heart of the sea, I think. Yeah, yeah. heart of the sea. It's okay. got a great cast, right? It's got like yeah. Tom Holland is in it, Brendan Gleeson's in it, Ben Wishaw is in it, Cillian Murphy's in it. Pre okay. Spider-Man Holland? No, I don't think so. Chris Hemsworth is the captain, so he's the weak spot in terms of acting. But I remember this movie now. Yeah, it's a thing. And yeah. in the end, I mean, what happens is the whale attacks. They they hear the story of this great big monstrous whale, and they go in pursuit of it. And they get way out at sea trying to find it. And then the whale finds them and attacks them and destroys their ship like they'd heard horror stories about that nobody believed. Yeah. And then they're all adrift at sea. And then as they die, they have to turn to cannibalism to survive. Yeah. And everybody's quiet about it afterwards and tries to cover it up except for the captain who then goes on to become a merchant. Or he's actually not the captain. He's the... He should be the captain, but he's like the first mate or something like that because of politics or something. I don't know. Yeah, I know that he received the story from the son of the first mate on one of his first whaling voyages of the Essex. And I, and then later I read somewhere, but I can't, I can't confirm this with anybody else, but apparently he went to Nantucket and talked to the guy who was either the first mate or the captain because he had been so unlucky. And I think it was because of that same ship where he had gone off to sea, the whale had destroyed the ship. I don't know if they were particularly looking for like a big whale or not, but it just so happened that their ship was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And then they were in like three boats and in the captain's boat, they ended up having to draw lots and like he had to kill his own godson 
or his yep. nephew, and then they ate, were eating each other, and it was just horrible. Yep. But by the time they got back to England, it, that didn't really ruin his reputation because people just thought, well, on New this, England, yeah. Yeah, New England. The, that's what happens on the sea. Mm-hmm. Things like that happen. So there was actually, in the imagination of the people, there was kind of a separation of what happened at the sea versus kind of like Vegas, I guess. Mm-hmm. What happens in the ocean stays <laughs> in the ocean. You do what you have to do. But to then survive. he goes and he is a merchant s- s- captain, and then his ship is foundered and crashes. And so then he, more than the horrible things that he had done and seen, it's his bad luck that keeps him from being a captain anymore. And so he has to be a watchman on the shores of Nantucket. Huh. And so I think that's the actual true story. There you go. So and Melville did go and like talk to this guy, but the guy didn't want to talk much to him. And, but Melville Yeah, still, that's the whole, yeah. the whole conceit of how that movie is framed. That this guy wasn't wanting to talk. Yeah, he shows up and he's, you know, they're sort of suffering because he can't make money. Yeah. And he's got a whole wad of cash that he's willing to throw at him. And he he won't talk. He's never talked to anybody, including his wife, about what really happened. And his wife wants it out of him just in part so that he can find some healing. Huh. I mean, that's the conceit. It's very Ron Howard sort of conceit. And and then the the guy's all like, well, you may think you're a writer, but you're no Nathaniel Hawthorne. So. Oh, that's funny. Well, I think Melville... What's interesting about the story as I heard it was that it seems to be more that Melville, everything that Melville looks at, he puts his imagination into. Mm-hmm. And so like this captain, he comes away with him. It comes, comes away from this guy saying that he's the most heroic and profound figure he had ever met. And my understanding is the guy didn't say much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it's out of that, just the imagining of what this man must have gone through and all these things he had seen that did start to influence Moby Dick. So there was that. And Moby Dick, as he was writing, it actually took on various shapes. There was the story as it was he was first writing it, which there's not a whole lot of knowledge of what that was going to look like. It might have looked like his earlier, as I think it was Tybee that came first, and then one, maybe one other. Two books that he made his name for himself, but they were just adventure stories. Because he came back from whaling and spending years on the sea to live with his mom and was telling her all these stories and relatives, these stories. And they were like, you should write these down. And so he did. And he began to make a name for himself and realized, Hey, I might be able to do this. But then his real desire, it's a little bit like Faulkner. Faulkner wrote the mansion mm-hmm. because he needed money, not because he actually liked it, but it became his biggest success. You mean sanctuary? Sanctuary. Yeah. Not the yeah. mansion. Thank you. So it would pop by, right? That's the one with. Yeah. yeah corn cobs and all that. Corn, yeah, yeah. That one. Yes. Thank you. That's the one that became his huge hit, but he hated that book. Yeah. And Melville kind of looked at this, his early writing. He started writing when he was in his late 20s and, or his mid 20s. And he got a name for himself, became a part of society, met a judge and his, who helped get him more involved in this community, married his daughter. His brother had become a successful politician in Polk's administration, I think, <laughs> and used some of his influence to help get some of his books published. He actually had a little bit more success in England at the time because they had less strict, they had more strict copyright laws. And so he would get published over there first. And then also they had critics who would help influence what Americans would think. Kind of similar to still how things go today <laughs> with like the Guardian and things like that, mm-hmm. right? And so there were some stirrings about this young talent. And then for the next four years or so, he came into some money and he went off to the country and had some free time with his family to write 
And that's where Moby Dick began to formulate and come out of that. So at some point he met that captain and two other things that really influenced the shaping of the novel, he really got into reading Shakespeare again. And man, do you see Shakespeare? You don't say. (laughs) You see Shakespeare all over this. In fact, he said that if the Messiah were to come again, he would take the form of Will Shakespeare. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Okay, then. Yep. And so he loved Shakespeare. I mean, this is basically just a retelling of Lear, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Down to random soliloquy breaks. Yeah, and yelling at nature. And yelling, (laughs) (laughs) baptizing harpoons in blood. I guess Lear never did that. No, he didn't. He may as well. It's a very Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah, very very Shakespearean. Then the other big thing was his friendship with Hawthorne. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into all that. (coughs) Oh, it doesn't help if I mute. Brandon's mic so that Jake, so Jake can cough. <laughs> so everybody heard Jake cough and probably did not hear what I said. You should actually probably re-say the last sentence of what you said. Uh, Hawthorne would influence his writing. I don't know what I said. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're just going to have to leave all that in. Mm-hmm. Anyways, wow. So we've, we're kind of coming at this at a hodgepodge manner, but what better way than to approach this book? Mm. Yes. Right. That's kind of a hodge. So people, that's kind of like a, like the breaking bad opening where you get a little snippet of yeah, what's a little to come. Snippet. Now let's go back in time to when he was born. Hey, can I just ask, yeah. do, do they eat Tom Holland in the Ron Howard movie? Tom Holland is Brendan Gleeson. Oh, that's too bad. So okay. I was, ex- I was very excited Wait, by the Tom Holland becomes Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah, That's a much better meal. Interesting. It's Tom Holland's first voyage. And so he's just a shipmate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then he survives and he becomes Brendan Gleeson. And that's actually somehow who, the vicissitudes of life turned Tom Holland right. into Brendan Gleeson. Poor Tom Holland. <laughs> and, and, Walks and into a donut shop, comes out. <laughs> and that, that's who Melville talks to. So. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. that's not amazing. my understanding of the. Uh, sounds like they Moby Dicked the actual story. You don't say, Well, that's the dumb thing about this movie. First of all, it's just like it doesn't know what it wants to be. Yeah, and second of all, it's like it takes all of the wrong liberties in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. It feels like I don't it, know why movie directors think they need to do that. They did it with The Great Gatsby too. Yeah, that's another they, good example. Yeah, it's just so you know, and it's not like Ron Howard's the kind of person who seems like he feels like he needs to make his mark. It's just that he thinks he has better sensibilities for the modern audience than the guy who wrote the indelible Great American Novel. Yeah. And I mean, I can understand thinking that. I mean, I don't know how you actually adapt Moby Dick and it has defied people. Gregory Peck famously hated his adaptation so much. He tried to suppress it, like tried to make it so. Well, we just we just talked about maybe we talked about it or maybe I just had it in my head. Spielberg wanted to include a scene in Jaws where Quint was watching Gregory Peck's Moby Dick and laughing. And they reached out to Gregory Peck and he said, Please don't. He said, please don't. And it's not because I'm offended that you want a character laughing at my thing. It's because I just don't want people to remember that it exists. It exists. Who did he play? Ahab. A- yeah. Oh. Which is <laughs> I watched a little clip or trailer or whatever. It looks horrible. Yeah, arguably not great casting, but yes. well, how do you turn this book into a why movie? do you pick Gregory Peck for Ahab of all people? I know. I mean, I think it would have to be like an avant-garde kind of Danny Boyle. I mean, if you really wanted to do it and you wanted to include a lot of the novel, we need like an eight episode HBO. But it actually what has you, to what you what you really want is some somebody with a fantastic imagination 
you want almost that dude who did the song of the sea. You want something animated almost where mm-hmm. you can just be really fanciful and yes, like, I think Wes Anderson should do it. Yeah. <laughs> Wes Anderson's movie. Yeah, that, dick. that would be fantastic. That'd be great. Yeah, he, the one thing that you really get when you watch a Wes Anderson movie is that sense of fear, reverence, and awe. Yeah, I guess he tried to right. do that already with his Steve Zissou or whatever it is, right? Steve Zissou. The Life oh, Aquatic. Life Aquatic. Yeah. I, I guess that is Wes Anderson's Moby Dick. There you go. I didn't think about that until right now. Yeah. Well, probably, it was probably back in my subconscious. Right. Yeah. How, well, I was thinking like, what would the perfect casting for this movie be? And mm-hmm. I, was, I was wondering why nobody had tried to get The Rock to play Queequeg. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's pretty cool. Well, okay, we have to do it real quick. Sorry, folks, I know you want context. Which is weird because then I was thinking of the Ishmaels, like who would they pick to play Ishmael? And Ben Wishaw came to mind. Mm-hmm. And then I remember that apparently Ishmael's supposed to have broad shoulders. So Ishmael's, I mean, Ben Wishaw's out. Yeah, although Ben Wishaw could capture the voice of the book for the sort of more philosophic Ishmael, which is really yeah. the Ishmael. That but he most- says that he was chosen for the whaler, like because the guy, Peleg or whatever his name was, saw that he had... Broad shoulders. So I yeah. don't know if, you, if we're wanting to fit the character as the very brief moment of description we get from him, then it right. doesn't work. Oh, ben Rushaw just needs to hit the gym. Yeah. Well, right. you you can pick somebody that has more of a who splits that difference of contemplative, but sort of all American. I don't know who that would be. Contemplative all American. Chris Evans. Chris Evans. <laughs> One of the Chris's. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm joking. I mean, if it was a Chris, it would probably be Chris Pine. Pine. Chris Pine. Yeah. But is there a scenario where i say that and you don't say chris pine is the chris that you want he's just the the quality chris no that's right he's the best chris unless i said what would suck the most i'd say chris pine with hemsworth or chris pratt right yeah chris pine with a beard i think he could pull it off chris pine with a beard could pull it off yeah Yeah. pull off that beard so who's our so patrick stewart did a credible ahab in a tv adaptation but i I don't think he'd be my number one i'm sure i can think of someone better here real quick daniel day lewis yeah, that's kind of too easy, but it might be the right choice. Yeah. You can I mean, bring the that, authority. That is who I imagined, actually. Yeah. All the yelling, kind of, all the Daniel Day-Lewis and his... Yeah, mode. his ability to just sort of melt into a, a role like that. Yeah. Yeah, he would be And great. just disappear yeah. and be the, be the caricature. Yep. And yet bring humanity and life to it. Daniel Day-Lewis would spend... Two years hunting whales to prepare for the part. So, yeah. <laughs> Get himself killed or actually have his leg eaten off by right. Shamu. <laughs> I mean, I did also, okay, maybe this is horrible, but maybe this wouldn't work but because he's too young. But Michael Fassbender. Yeah, I could do it. Uh, yeah, Ahab, yeah. yeah. He's one of the few people you could think of that just has that authority. Yeah, that's what you want. You want somebody that can command, that can feel like he is that, Sort of like, yeah, he can just command a situation. He can go super. It's why he was cast as Macbeth. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess any great Shakespearean could do it. Ian McKellen in his prime could have done it. Uh, mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart did it, did well. Any of those kinds of people are going to be who you want. Someone that just exudes authority and can speak the vernacular. Yeah, it, Patrick Stewart feels just a little too clean. Like he can't go that quite that. But I, there's a reason he was cast as Lear, and he was a great Lear. Yeah, so. I mean, if you think about his Lear, or if you think about the crazy <clears throat> Macbeth that we watched yep. many years ago, yep. it, him in that mode is is good. You got to grizzle him up a little bit. Yeah, he, he doesn't read as credibly grizzled because we're so used to Jean Luc. But I'm sure some director would have tried to get Anthony Hopkins. Ah, uh, you know, yeah. Anthony Hopkins in his prime could have done it in yeah. his sleep. 
Yeah. I like the idea of a Daniel Day-Lewis or Michael Fassbender, though. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins can play a little cameo. Like, he can be the, the ship owner, one of the two ship owners, yeah. or get, yeah. get Hopkins for... Something like or that. Or one of the, you know, the captain of the Rachel or something like that. You, mm-hmm. can, you can cameo this stuff. Actually, this is a good one to... It's Harry Potter. Just get all Throw your kind all of... In there. Get them all in yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Not going to hire very many women. Actually, would you hire any... Would any women work if you were casting Moby Dick? No. Not really. I mean, where would who would they play? Some of the towns. Just, just the woman at the who was afraid of Queequeg. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple. I guess the sister or whatever. The the one main woman part is the sister of the two of one of the owners of the ship, who's a I think a pious lady who is coming going back and forth and getting provisions for the ship. She she actually has a little part in the novel. Anyway. So we've got our Chris Pine and Daniel Day-Lewis joint. Let's get this going. In the making. Yeah. Warhorn's first movie. Yeah, there you go. Daily Wire's doing it. We can do it too. Wait, the Daily Wire's making a movie? Daily Wire's making a bunch of garbage. Is it going to be a good movie? we got to cast Gina Carano, guys. Yeah, she can play Ahab. She's got the shoulders for it. She (laughs) can play uh, Ishmael. All right. I'm glad we figured this out. And The Rock is Quig. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. He was made for that role. Just get the CGI of The Rock from, what's that Disney thing? with the Moana. Yeah, Moana, The Rock. Yeah. get have, Just have that guy. Yeah, what, whatever his name is, Fonzie. F- Fonzie, yeah. <laughs> what's his name? Loki. No, it's something. Maui. Maui. There yeah. we go. Yeah, get Maui. All right, we were, so we've, we've Speaking cast. Speaking of Maui. Yeah. He eventually went to Maui because he whaled in that area. Melville. Melville did. Okay. Melville. <laughs> Okay, guys. Back on track. Back on track. This might be the most digressive. Oh, this isn't in the top 10 most digressive. Transgressive. Well, it might be. No. No. Come on. (laughs) Irrepressive. Transgression, thy name is the beginning. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. There's our t-shirt. Brandon. Brandon is fat. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But, you know, I just want to state for the record, Brandon is... Not fat. Thank you. He is the opposite of fat. I Thank can't, you. but whoever programmed this board, I cannot count. It. <laughs> it makes me angry. Can't be you. No, I think that. it is like some elves, you know, like we're going to fix all Nathan's shoes and we're going to program this thing to say Brandon is fat. And I'm like, you stupid elves. And I stupid elves. smashed him with a hammer. The blood is everywhere. <laughs> the elf blood is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your shoes won't be fixed anymore. It's no, weirdly John, sweet smelling. John Coffee wasn't around to I think he might have got to fix my shoes to, <laughs> to, fix, <laughs> to fix the elves. To fix the elves, yeah. he, he wanted to help, but he couldn't take it yeah, back. I tried to take it back, <laughs> <laughs> boss. <laughs> okay, now it's the most that, digressive. That, that's the book that's coming up next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a digression. It's a transgression. Mm. Hey, hey, Brandon. <laughs> Let's get back. <laughs> Let's get back, oh! you guys. Get back. <laughs> shot you guys, and get I'm out of here. Get back to where you want to come on. Yeah. Context, my friend. Yeah. Beatles was playing at the coffee shop this morning. I haven't even checked off one thing on my list yet. (laughs) This is going to be awesome. So bio. Bio. Let's just go through the list. Yeah. Who are we talking about again? This is Melville. He was born in 1819. Okay. Yeah. 131 years ago. Yeah. That's right. No. Born in a fledgling (laughs) nation. (laughs) 203 years ago. <laughs> you know, if you say something with confidence, then you're automatically right. <laughs> that was way so, off, Nate. Uh, way two, off by 72 years or something like that. 200? What'd you say? 1891? 1819. Oh. 
Yeah, that's... That's what you get for not listening. That's a long time ago. 1891 would have made him a modernist, Nathan. Frailty, thy name is... (laughs) Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, he was born in 1819. 1819. Seven years after the comet, Mm -hmm. making him contemporaries of... Some of the guys who were born in 1812, he would have been riding in the same. <laughs> ah, remember we've talked about that before. Brilliant, yes. <laughs> oh, man, this is the sort of stuff people love to hear in the booking. Mark Twain and Charles Dickens. Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, Tolstoy, and Dostoevsky mm-hmm. would have been riding around the same time as well. So this was, a lot of people look at the period of history that he was riding in as the American Renaissance. Mm-hmm. But this Brandon, was like, did you know that you're contemporaries of people who were born five to seven years before you? Really? Yeah. And people five to seven years after you. Wow. It's amazing. It is. For as long as you don't die, you're contemporary <laughs> okay. with whoever's alive. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when we speak of contemporaries in literature, though, we often mean the guys who were writing around the same time. Okay. Even if they Thanks. were. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'm quit. You guys do this. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> I oh. shot myself. <laughs> you need you need that. What's the name of that famous scream that makes it into all the? Oh, the Wilhelm scream. The, the Wilhelm yeah. scream. Yeah. You need that program yes, onto the board. I do. Just yeah. occasionally after the gunshots go off. Oh man, and oh. I, I need a I need a rim shot too. I mean, you I'm, do. I'm yeah, you absolutely. You have so many possibilities. <laughs> with, with the crickets board. become the rim shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. okay. So. <laughs> We just had the fascinating un- reality. The fascinating unreality? <laughs> the unreality. I kind of, I don't know what's going <laughs> the on. Best thing. This, is just, this is going off the rails. Brandon was killed and replaced. Kind of like Melville's career went off the rails after he published Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how this context is going. Yeah. No, no, no. It's a great context and a great podcast. Arguably the best podcast we've ever done. So what I was saying is that people talk of this era as being the American Renaissance mm-hmm. because along with him, you're going to have Emerson and Hawthorne and Poe. How could it be a Renaissance? Yeah. You have Harriet Beecher Stowe. Exactly. All these people are writing the, no- the novels we look back at as the potentially great American novels. What are we renaissancing though? Like, but yeah. yeah. So before that you had, I guess what people would say you were renaissancing would have been Washington Irving and James Fenimore Cooper. Okay. That those were the guys who kind of established American letters. And also before then, would have been some of the political writing that I was going to say produced you, the American what Revolution. Would he have like the Federalist Papers and the Puritans? Mm-hmm. Like the yeah, Puritans? yeah. So John, Jonathan Edwards, for this to really, it's kind of it's not American Renaissance as so much as it is the birth of American letters. Right. Yeah, that's, that's more happening. what it feels like. Yeah, and so I, I do. I think that that is a misnomer. I agree with you guys. Thanks, because we had Washington Irving, who actually would be influential in helping. Melville get published in the first place. Irving was one of his early champions. And you had James Fenimore Cooper, who nobody really looks back at as, I mean, he, he's kind of the early dime store novelist sure, of American yeah. nobody letters. Respects but, uh, there are people who try to make an argument for Last of the Mohicans being the great American novel. It's the great American Daniel Day-Lewis movie. But it's what's, what's interesting is, so in Melville's imagination, He's obsessed with this well, and the well becomes a metaphor for all of life and the pursuit of the well. And he's able to take this thing. And and I think that if there's any argument for him being the great American novel, it's the fact that in the American imagination, there has ever been a need to look for what the great American novel is in the first place. Yeah, Like that's part of what it is to be an American, mm-hmm. is this intense imaginative exploration of nature and the world and politics and all these things, right? 
and also an insecurity in related in relation to everything else as yeah. to whether or not we're actually good enough. Right. right? Yeah. How do we, when and how can we establish our own tradition and history and mythos yep. that has any kind of comparison point to old Europe? Yep. And so if there's anything that makes this the great American novelist, because it captures that sort of spirit, mm -hmm. that intense introspective, but also wide ranging attempt to make all of the world fit into what it is to be an American. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because the British don't feel the need to have the great British novel. Right. The Russians don't feel the need to have the great Russian novel. Right. They, they're not out there thinking that th thought. They have arguments over who are their best writers. Yeah. I mean, they have half a dozen. Yeah. So. But if you look up like great why, novel, the only country that has its own great, Amer great novelist search is America. Right. And we still have that argument today. And it's just kind of, it's kind of, it, it's really interesting. And why I bring this up is because the revival that will make Melville important is kind of linked to the search for the great American novel. Hmm. And so as you know, we've always kind of been, it's like Moby Dick is a good metaphor for America's attempt to find what it is to be an American. Mm -hmm. Like we more than any other nation have this intense desire to mm, discover what it is to be us. Well, yeah, we're such a, I mean, it's like the Tocqueville, we're such a melting pot, you know, that's yeah. the phrase. What is it to have a uniquely American identity? What is it to have any kinds of roots? What is it yeah. to be a people? What is it to be? Well, the city we're recording this in is Evansville, Indiana. It's a river town. The river has shaped this community and its people and its heritage. And you see, but you see throughout the city, all of these very Germanic things and very things that harken back to the fact that actually we're, dis, we're all a displaced people that have come together and tried to start something new. How do we, how do we create our own identity mm -hmm. instead of try to borrow one or retain one from that doesn't fit anymore? That's just part of, I think every, every, every city has something like that. And in the colonial cities, the colonial, colonial America has at least this rootedness in the foundation of the country Right. that the rest of the country doesn't quite have, but we all have places where we're trying to stake our claim whether it's like we were a mining, we were a gold rush community, we were a mining community, we were, yep. we're an early river town or settlement, we're this or that, like something that you're like grasping for that says this is what it means to be a Midwesterner. Well, we're New Yorkers. We we were the original. We're Alexander Hamilton. We're we're, we're Bostonians. We're we are it. We're the Tea Party. We're the revolutionaries. We're the Green Dragon. We're the all that stuff. But how do you how do you find and shape something that covers the the wide swath that is this yeah. rabble of immigrants that have accumulated over just a couple short centuries? Yeah, and so at heart, that's what the big metaphorical chapters of this book are doing. Like he thinks about whiteness, and then realizes that whiteness can mean all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. And really, whiteness is. It's useful in the sense that it's this blank canvas that you can put any meaning you want to into. And I think that in that sense, this is, it's really fascinating how this book has become for critics, like whatever they want it to mean, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As they search for what, whatever they mean by the great American. But unlike so many novels that we talk about, that's baked into this novel. It's yeah. not like, yeah. you, actually, I think, you actually should bring some of that to this novel. Which I think makes it, like Tolstoy's works, it makes it the representative American novel. Mm-hmm. 
right? Whether or not you want to use the term great American novels. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that, so I wanted to bring that up because I think in itself, it shows how successful this novel is because it gets at what it is to be an American in the sense that we of all people have to have the idea of a great American novel. Like mm-hmm. we're always trying to pursue what it is to be an American. And every president has their own interpretation of what it is to be an American. And now you see like with the Supreme Court decisions coming down that that's always on shaky grounds, mm-hmm. right? Yep. People think that under Biden, we have one, finally, a representative of what it means to be an American, but that's actually not what We would have if that Putin price hike didn't bite off our leg and drag us down into the whirlpool of destruction. I know. And so now, you know, let's go over there and pursue that whale, (laughs) (laughs) which I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. Boy. Are we getting bored with this conversation, Nathan? (laughs) No, I just thought that was a good way to cap that discussion. Yeah. So... We actually have to come back to that anyway, so I can't cross it off yet. So he was born in 1819. That's as much as we've established. He was contemporary with people who were alive at that time. And it's like we're having little bitty digressions that are becoming chapters within Yeah, we're we're doing a meta podcast right now. (laughs) This is the Melville, this is the Moby Dick. How long have we been recording? Podcast episodes. Just 40 minutes. (laughs) We've not even really started context yet. We've established that Herman Melville was a man who was born. He was Mm -hmm. born. And that he lived when the people who lived lived. were alive. Yeah. Yeah. People who were writing. <laughs> yes, yes. Other writers. Did you know that people are writing today? Yeah, we're contemporaries of them. That's right. Now, if are. I'm alive right now, am I a contemporary of somebody who's also alive and writing? You are. But I have another question for mm-hmm. you. If I'm alive right now, sure. am I a contemporary of somebody who is dead? No. What if the person who's dead is writing? <laughs> Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like writing from the grave? It, it's a fair question, Brandon. I, I guess you'd be a ghost it. writer, like a literal ghost writer. Yeah. And then yes, you would be a contemporary of <laughs> that ghost, ghost writer. writer. The pattern is full. Yeah. I wonder it, if anybody's ever... That's, there's I have idea. another question. Ghost writer. You're a really, you really are a ghost and you're right. <laughs> if I'm alive right now, uh-huh. big F, yeah. am I a contemporary with somebody who is not yet bored? Are you suggesting that the book and he may be our own form of purgatory and we're all dead? <laughs> <laughs> It becomes increasingly <laughs> likely with every moment. <laughs> what if no? Oh! <laughs> what, what if nobody's writing? Oh, like at this point, right now? Right? Can like, we? Can we be? Can, can you imagine like a point in time, like a brief, a, a moment where, for one brief moment, not a single person in all of the world is writing? Yeah, I'm sure that it's a possibility. Yeah. It's called like seven thirty in the morning. But it's I, I don't five know o'clock somewhere. <laughs> in in which case, somebody's always drinking. But yeah, are they always writing? Probably not. Probably because so many people are drinking instead of writing mm-hmm. nowadays. Nobody writes anymore or reads anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, probably. <laughs> Those are the sort of profound well, philosophical meditations <laughs> that Melville himself gets into. Should we Frenchy, go back? Thy name is Brandon. Brandon is fat. <laughs> Melville was born in 1819. <laughs> oh! <Okay. laughs> he was born in 1819 to two fading families of American gentry. Okay. It's fading like in a Stephen Millhauser. <laughs> yeah, like... Novel. Hey, yeah. I'm a fading family and you're a fading family. You want to have a baby? <laughs> Meaning that they used to have more prominence than they had at the time that mm-hmm. he was born. And this would be influential because... Or important for his life because he had a childhood that was much like Charles Dickens in the sense that his father had some schemes to try and get rich. One of them was getting into the fur trade. These things failed. His father 
went into a delirium and died when he was fairly young, like 10 or 11. And he was pulled out of school and had to start working to help support his family. And so he would be haunted by the, for the rest of his life by the fact that he used to, or his family had this prominence, had this prestige that he didn't get the benefit of. And so he would always be at this position, a little bit like Ishmael, where you get the sense that this man is more educated than all, everybody else around him. Right. Has a more intense understanding and brilliance of mind than anybody else around him. And yet he's put into these lowly positions because of circumstance. There was a bit of a financial crisis in the 1830s that made matters worse. His brother for a while had, an, I think it was another fur trading business. It was some sort of merchant business that he got involved with, but even that began to fail. And so he went back to school very briefly in his late teens and then went to sea to make his living and was there for a number of years. And so this is his childhood. He, from what we can tell, he probably was exposed to the classics in school. So he, his family wasn't like a literary family in the sense that we've seen with some of the other authors in the past where he would have been, where his dad just had a library that he would have gone to, like with the Brontes or something mm -hmm. like that, right? But he definitely read Shakespeare. He definitely read Milton. He, he, was, he, he was familiar with the classics. A little bit like Tolstoy though, in the sense that he wasn't like a voracious reader or anything mm -hmm. when he was young. It was more that he just had an expansive mind and he went off and he sowed his oats while he was young. Some of the critical stuff that I read made it sound like, and I don't know whether this is true or not, you can give me your thoughts, but was, there was this tone of kind of condescension on the part of the people talking about Melville because they made it sound like he, the frame of reference in Moby Dick is so wide. The, the, uh, what am I trying to say? They cast him as an autodidact who's desperate to show off. And so he's throwing in every reference and everything that he can think of I mean, to, to, to try and say, yeah, hey, I know about that. And I know about that. And I've read my Shakespeare and I've read my Plutarch and that that kind of thing. I mean, I think that there are reasons to say that it's partly true. Like his one of his earliest works was just full of references and allusions. And I do think that part of he part of his depression later on, he fought with he struggled with depression and melancholy his entire life. And you see that mirrored in Ishmael. I mean, one of the reasons he goes to sea is because it's better than a bullet, is basically what he says. Mm -hmm. Right. He got to that point in his life where he needed to do something or, or he was just gonna kill himself. And so Melville struggled with the same feelings his entire life. And I think part of that had to have been because he real he thought that he could have been something else. Mm -hmm. And that circumstances just prevented him. Probably a good parallel to him would be Poe. Mm -hmm. You know, that right. is something that I think in spite of Ron Howard, Ben Wishaw really captured in that stupid little horrible in the little bit that he had. I wondered how much that was, but, 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 but as you talk, I'm just like, wow, he really like captured that real sort of insecure sense of I'm committed to trying to do things that are beyond me and I suck mm -hmm. and I can never and but it's I'm, fascinating. But, but I'm going to try, and I hope you won't be disappointed. That this sort of like sadness of, well, I know I can't. I know that I'll never. But I feel burdened with the need to to do it. Kind of sounds like Ben Wishaw would be a good casting for an actual biography of Melville that yeah. actually wanted to tell the story. Yeah, yeah, I'm, and I think that that did haunt him his entire life. Is that he felt that could he have had the money and prestige because like when his grandparents died 
they thought maybe they were going to come into an inheritance only to find out that their father had loan, had borrowed against his inheritance so that all that was left to them was like the equivalent of $500 mm. and his mom. And it was just awful. Right. And so it was just like blow after blow. And so then he goes off and he has this, but he has this state of mind where I do think it's going to gnaw at him the rest of his life that in his letters. And I've read some critics that never even bring that up. So I think that that's just them reading into it. Like mm-hmm. that must be what he was doing. Because I also think that he just had a mind that just chewed on things, right? And so when he had something that was that he was obsessed with, that just saturated his imagination. Mm-hmm. And he just spun it and spun. I mean, we can see that with Moby Dick. That's, sure. what, that's just the way he thought. He just mm-hmm. got every single thing he could out of a metaphor. And so, of course, he was going to do the same thing with Shakespeare. And yeah, maybe there's some insecure throwing it around. And... But you don't you don't get to a chapter like the chapter on whiteness and think, ah, oh, what kind of metaphors can I come yeah. up with? It's because he's been chewing on all this stuff. Yeah, it's, right. It comes out of. I mean, I see. So he had notebooks and notebooks of little diary journal yeah. meditations on this or that thought that he was like building off of. Yeah, and, this is good. Yeah. I can put this in. And the other yeah. thing, I mean, so he did write, like I said, a little bit before he left. He was a school teacher as well, but. I, from what I can tell, there's nothing to really say that he even thought about trying to become a great writer until later, right? Mm. Until he got back and realized that he could do this. He could tell stories. I could be wrong about that. I mean, there might be a Melville scholar out there who knows there's something that I didn't see, but I just, in other words, I think that that's people assuming that's the case, but a little bit like Shakespeare, we don't know a whole lot about what he was doing in his early years and the way he was thinking because his writings, we don't have his letters. We don't have things like that. So. Mm-hmm. So we can assume that might that might be the case, but I think it's just as likely there's some of that there, but also that that's just was his personality to just dwell on things and to spend an inordinate amount of time with things that he loved and which just couldn't get rid of it. Maybe a little bit of obsessive compulsive, mm-hmm. which I think that does tend to go hand in hand with depression, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, the section from the book I keep thinking of as you describe him is nothing to do with Ishmael, but it's Ahab. And specifically when Ahab throws his pipe overboard because it yeah. no longer gives him any pleasure, which is mm-hmm. one of the saddest and maybe best descriptions of depression that I think we've, well, we've read on the bookening. So one of the things I was reading, they did say that people liken Melville to Ishmael, but they often forget to see how much he is like Ahab as well. Mm-hmm. In the sense that when he started writing this book, so he had, so he came back from his travels and we'll get to those in just a minute. But when he was writing this novel, like he would shut himself in his room f- pretty much the entire day. His wife, nobody was able to go into the room without knocking. He would come down for a brief dinner and then go to bed. Like this just consumed him, the writing of this book. And it's a little bit like the search for the well, right? In the sense that this, this particular personality cannot let something go. Mm-hmm. And so he had this novel and he needed to get it done. And so I think that he saw himself and Ahab as well, which means that Ahab, it helps you run, understand why Ahab's never just like the villain in the book. Right. Right. There are these scenes, like when he's talking to Starbuck about what he was like when he was a young man, when he sees him crying, mm-hmm. you just realize that, yeah, there's some humanity to Ahab and there's, he's actually a tragic figure. He's not just a villain. Mm-hmm. Right. And anyways, yeah. As you, as you talk, I think Ishmael actually feels in that sense more like wish fulfillment or something like what if I could have all these thoughts and all these insights, but also be a kind of cosmopolitan go along, get along guy that nothing really affects. Who's just kind of 
able to be an observer able to be an observer ishmael's not portrayed at least i didn't read him as particularly melancholy or i guess there are little hints and things yeah. i could kill myself or go to see there is that kind of fatalism in ishmael certainly but he's he's he, it's it's more just kind of all right cool yeah that brand of fatalism than well i mean there so there are things like this in this letter that he wrote to hawthorne so he says to go down to posterity is bad enough anyway but to go down as a man who lived among cannibals so he's talking about someone who was famous and he's like i don't want to be remembered like that i have come to regard this matter of fame as the most transparent of all vanities i do not think of fame a year ago as i do now my development has been all within a few years past i'm like one of those seeds taken out of the egyptian pyramids which after being 3,000 years a seed and nothing but a seed, being planted in English soil, it developed itself, grew to greenness, and then fell to mold. So I, until I was 25, I had no development at all. So I, I mean, yeah, I do think that there's some insecurity that he had about the fact that he's not as educated. You know, I think that probably that Flannery O'Connor quote, or maybe it's Twain, I forget, that, you know, my education has never been a burden to me or whatever mm-hmm. is partly true here. I mean, you see with him the intense creativity that you see with Shakespeare and Dickens. And what all three of them share in common is that we really don't think that they had like a world-class education when they were young. So I don't know. Interesting. Dickens and Melville were both probably pretty insecure about that. Mm -hmm. Never thought that they quite measured up to the educated geniuses. Right. Melville happens to do it very well, but Dickens at his worst can feel the same where it's like, I'm throwing in big words and yeah, big the, ideas because I'm mm-hmm. a little yeah, so insecure that, about Yeah, myself. I guess so that's my way of answering your question that I think is probably there, but it doesn't seem to be a prominent feature. Right. Like if I were a, a Melville's critic, I don't think that that would be something I would spend much time dwelling on because it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be, it seemed to be something that if it was there, it never got in the way of his real genius. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? Yes, absolutely. Like I think that more, you see it more in like writers like Henry James and people like that that were well-educated and wanted to convince the world that they still were real-educated mm-hmm. in the way that they wrote their books, right? Absolutely. But yeah, so Longfellow, these other, like the great educated poets that would go and teach at Harvard and stuff, they were writing at the same time as well. They were also contemporaries, a part of this American Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And so, and you had Hawthorne and you had Poe. So it's interesting, Yeah. So then to just go back to his adventures on at sea, he did go to sea and these would shape his imagination. That's similar to Conrad or to Tolstoy who went off on his gambling and That's then right. to war for a while, right? That they have these periods where they their imagination, instead of going to university, they go to the world and their imagination is shaped and they see things. And I think that that, that even more than like, so you get these MFA program writers today, right? And they all seem like they're mm-hmm. just cookie cut to be published by the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Yep. Iowa writers. Yeah, the Iowa workshop writers. And the only interesting writers they've produced were the ones that were before they became famous, before the Iowa writers workshop became like a big deal. Like mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor was one of them. But everybody post that just kind of seems like they're trying to stretch for the same John Updike style. Yeah. Right? Yep. These guys like Tolstoy, like Melville, like... They didn't have that. Instead, they went to the world and he went to the sea and he went on a merchant ship for a while. Then he got involved with a whaling ship where at one point he and his friend decided to ditch the ship on this cannibal island and they got separated and he was finally rescued. But that became the story that became Tybee. Mm-hmm. And then as also, he told it, I mean, I don't know whether we actually believe him, but wasn't it a pretty crazy, like he has to shoot cannibals and yeah. 
they're running at him and he jumps into a boat and all, yeah, all I've this never, kind I've of, never actually read Tybee, but yeah. yeah, my understanding is it's a pretty intense story. And that's what, so, so we'll get there in just a minute, but that's what made his people, people saw Melville at first as an adventure story writer. Mm-hmm. And so it was a shock to their system when Mel when Moby Dick came out. <laughs> I bet. Well, one other interesting it's a shock thing to everyone's system today because Moby Dick is still cast in people's minds as an adventure story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, how it's sold to high school kids. Yeah, this is about a the story of the pursuit. I see. Yeah, of a a hunt of. Of a whale on the high seas. And then it's deflated based on those expectations. You either hear yeah. people say, oh, it's an adventure story. You should try it. And then you're, you you hit up against it. Like, or you hear people saying, yeah, it's got a chapter on the color white and a chapter on whales, you know what. On and oil, and oil and oil. pieces of yeah. blubber and oil. And- yeah. Yeah. And so people give it a, they misrepresent it. And so you have mm-hmm. no clue what you're coming to. Yeah. One thing I forgot to mention, which is a pretty f- interesting fact, is he was actually born in Melville without the E. It's after his father's failure and their move to like the country for a while as his mom tried to rehabilitate their name. Because remember, she also came from a high-class gentry that had fallen. That they added the E, and most people think it was because they were trying to distance themselves from their father's memory. So anyways. Huh. And so he would live the rest of his life with that E as a reminder of his failed father. <laughs> <laughs> and how he himself was becoming that failed father. That's a very Melville thing to do. Yeah. So, yeah, he was also part of a whaling ship in which he was briefly put in prison for being a part of a mutiny <laughs> in Tahiti. And so he had all these sorts of adventures, would go home, like I said, and then his family would say, you got to write these down. He did publish Tybee and became known as an adventure story writer along the lines of like a Fenimore Cooper. It was during this time, though, that his you know, depression, his ideas of what he really wanted to do and be, then he met this. The, he heard of the story of the Exeter, then he became, he moved out to the countryside. I think he borrowed some money, was able to buy a little farm and began to get some more time to write. And that does, I, the way I think you can understand it best is that now, now that he had time to write in the freedom, his own desire to tell stories that he wanted to tell and his genius began to come out. Mm-hmm. And then also his, he became friends with Hawthorne and- Was Hawthorne his neighbor at that time? Yeah, and so they met and they would have long conversations into the night. And people think that some of his conversations with Hawthorne helped to shape what Moby Dick would become. And then he also began to read Shakespeare and realize what you could actually do with like a character-driven plot as opposed to just a plot. And Moby Dick is what resulted from that. There were some other influences like Thoreau and Emerson were writing at the same time. And so this idea of transcendentalism, which I think we've talked about in the past, but basically what would become the American philosophy of self-reliance and trusting yourself over what you, over the opinions of others. I think if you want to hear an extended discussion of that by us, listen to our Frankenstein episode, I want to say. Yeah. Yep. And so it's not so, it's not really that important for Moby Dick just to know, just kind of to put him in context to what was happening around the same time. One thing that is important with the transcendentalists, though, is that they were really intensely focused on our understanding of nature and how we can take truth away from nature, mm-hmm. because you definitely see that influence in Moby Dick, right? You look at the whale and you can learn all philosophy from the whale. But the big influences, like literary influences, that most people think were important to him at the time would have been Hawthorne, Shakespeare, Milton, and 
a little book called The Anatomy of Melancholy by Richard Burton from the 1600s. <laughs> and one reason that book was so influential wasn't just because it was on melancholy, which saturates this book, but it was like a hodgepodge of quotes and snippets of all these various literary forms put into this book. And people think that, critics think that he took some of his, he realized with that book that you could do more than just write a straightforward plot. Mm -hmm. You could throw things together and by their relationship to each other, make something more than the sum of its whole parts. I say that right? <laughs> more than the sum of its whole parts. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so there were these influences then that came to help shape what this novel would become. It wasn't necessarily completely radical. You had had a, oh, what was it? Tom Jones that, that had kind of done similar things in the 1700s. In other words, a pastiche book that had various styles and influences wasn't completely, that wasn't just in and of itself revolutionary. What was revolutionary was how intensely focused it was on this one thing and just made this one thing like an extended metaphor, mm -hmm. which is the whale and whaling. And so, yeah, he published this book. You have, I think I, I just read that letter to Melville, right? He wrote it in a pretty happy time of his life. Let's see what he said, if I can find that quote. Yeah, he said, he buries himself in a third study room. He works and slaves on his whale while it is driving through the press. That is the only way I can finish it now. But even then you see some of this just dissatisfaction with his life. I am so pulled hither and thither by circumstances, the calm, the coolness, the silent grass growing mood in which a man ought always to compose that I fear can seldom be mine. Dollars damn me and the malicious devil is forever grinning in upon me, <laughs> holding the door ajar. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. Yeah. And so again, this just, this realization that he wants to publish this book. He feels the need to get this book out and yet the world's preventing him from doing it. Right. And he publishes it first. He goes to England where it's called the whale or Moby Dick is how it's published there. And the critics, at least the ones that matter, didn't like it. They gave it a pretty bad reviews. They said that it was a hodgepodge, that the English was bad or that the English wasn't bad, that the English was mad, mm -hmm. like insane. They're like, these are the writings of a madman. Hmm. And so that colored the book for the American audience. It was published there a little bit later as Moby Dick or the Well. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they flipped the title, but they did. And that prevented it from selling much. It sold 2,000 copies. And one person I read said that by the end of the 1900s, only 4,000 copies of the book had sold. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Published in 1851. And so over the next 50 years, only 4,000 copies sold. You know, it's amazing. Is, is, it, is yeah. it weird that I'm not sure I blame the critics like... For being confused, for, and, I mean, or not getting it, or yeah, it just feels like without the benefit of posterity, yeah, and without the benefit of somebody saying this is a momentous work of genius. If you just came to this cold, it walks such a knife edge of self-parody almost. I mean, it, it's so always bordering on well, and ridiculous. Every, yeah, every work of of genius that takes the kinds of risks like this really, I think, are going to depend on a couple of critics being willing to stand out on a limb yeah. by themselves, a limb that might not bear up under the weight of it and put themselves out there with the author. And that's actually what we're going to see happen. It's very similar to what Tolkien did for Beowulf. Mm -hmm. Right up until Tolkien championed Beowulf, nobody cared about Beowulf, right? So it does take these, if you guys ever read If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler by Italo Calvino, 
where he talks about the important relationship. Basically, the whole book is about how important it is for an author to have a reader who really understands them mm -hmm. and that that reader then becomes a champion for them, basically. That, I mean, that's kind of a misrepresentation of what that book's about. But anyways. Right. You guys want to hear something hopeful? Yeah. Does he need to pause this? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I just, I was curious because we publish books. Mm -hmm. And so you have the great American novel Oh, the yeah, first that's funny. 50 years of public publication sold 4,000 copies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have we outsold Moby Dick? I hope we're close with the, <laughs> daddy tried is close. Nice. Daddy tried has almost hit the 4,000 copies sold mark. And the grace of shame has hit 3,000, but has a thousand more to go more or less. And so, yeah, hey, I mean, Hey, I mean, I know those aren't, those aren't, they're similar parallels to, to, to us. They yeah. see, they seem like, Small numbers, but when you kind of look, step back and have some perspective. Yeah. I mean, 4,000 for the great American novel mm -hmm. in, the, in its first 50 years. Yeah. That's just, it was unknown. It was unnoticed. And this drove him into depression in the last years of his life were just him taking odd jobs here and there. He tried to, his hand at poetry for a while. His novel, Pierre, was another bust and then just died in obscurity. Mm-hmm. When did he write Bartleby? Oh, that would have been after. That would have been. Yeah. But still, yeah, none, nothing that we know today, like all that Bartleby and Billy Budd, those are all colored by the fact that we now think of him as the great, a great American novelist. He was in such obscurity that when he died, they misspelled Moby Dick in his obituary in the New York Times. How'd they spell it? Put an E in there or yeah, something? something like that. The, yeah. the, the W-A-I-L. That's, like, that's just how little anybody cared. Mm-hmm. It was like this passing, like it would be like some screenwriter that nobody really cares about. Just, it's a note, but it's just, it's sad. That's how, that's how he passed the last 20 years or 30 years of his life was without really writing anything else. Hmm. Because it's just, for one, he, he did it. He wrote Moby Dick, but also nobody cared. Mm -hmm. And so it just made him give up. Yeah. That would be pretty crushing. Yeah. And so, and he wrote it fairly young too. It came and out confusing. when he was 32. I mean, you've written something that is so ambitious and so risky and so brilliant, and you have to be pretty committed yeah. to, to, to it and to the idea that you're doing something unique and brilliant and to get as far as you got with it. Mm -hmm. And then for nobody to recognize it for what it actually, yeah. in fact, is, to just be sit there stuck with the uncertainty and the self-doubt yeah. and, the, and the confusion of, oh, I really think I did do something great, but nobody agrees yeah. with me. Am I insane? Am I crazy? How wrong am I? Like, Yeah, and that, that is what he did. He was in the shadow of his friends who were successful, and he thought, you know, I must not be. He didn't have like that Maxwell Perkins to come in and mm -hmm. be his champion. And we now live after books that have, have been as playful with their form. Because, I mean, this book is extreme. It's like it has everything. It has the narrator, but then it also has theater. It has monologues and soliloquies. It has all these things that are just thrown in there. Many chapters like, that Ishmael po couldn't possibly yeah. have observed. I mean, as far as structure goes, he was doing his best to just cram everything in there and make it work. And there yeah. is an adventure story and it draws on prior adventure stories. Like you had the Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving that he was drawing from, but then he was also drawing from Shakespeare. He was drawing from poetry. He it's was just, drawing it's, from... In that sense, it's very like, it's like Salman Rushdie wishes he could... Exactly. Yeah, Salman Rushdie wishes that he was this. Yeah. 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 But it also gives a, you less sympathy for people like Salman Rushdie when they complain that 
the public at large doesn't get them. It's like, it's like, oh yeah, please. You're doing all right, buddy. You're doing yeah. just fine. And Herman Melville suffered and died so that you could be, be a pale yeah. shadow of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be, and, and far more successful in your lifetime than he too. ever was. That's one of the things that I, th- after my reading, and we're not to that point yet mm-hmm. when we're talking about this, but after this reading, I thought one of the most overlooked aspects of this book is how funny it is. It's very funny. Like he's, he's yeah. just, he made me laugh a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's very dry. Like It is, but like that part where he was making fun of the guy for drawing all the snowflakes. Mm-hmm. And he's like, i surprised he didn't go out and take an affidavit from a justice of the peace mm-hmm. in Greenland to verify each drawing or something. He was like, <laughs> yeah. that's hilarious. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but he's drawing from all these influences and this is like a sponge that like is, it encapsulates every genre that was coming about because of the printing press revolution. You had journalism, you had science writing, you had theater, you have criticism, you have philosophy, you have all these things that are just like in this book. Like if you want to, it's like cutting into like the the glaciers to see the layers of all the things that have happened. Mm -hmm. Like with this book, you can just do a cross section of all the various writing styles that were around at the time. It's pretty fascinating to see. So, yeah. But yeah, so that gets through most of what I wanted to talk about. We talked about genre, mm-hmm. bio, influences, reception. All right. We talked about the development of the novel. Modernism. I think we still need to well, d- discuss yeah, actually, modernism. we are going to get to modernism. No! <laughs> Did you know that? No, I didn't. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. A couple other things that I wanted to touch on, and these are just things we're going to tag. I'm sorry. Can I, can I ask a question before you? Yeah. Uh, uh, I keep not asking. How long is this question. context now? Well, you know, we're just a little over an hour, totally. Is this the longest context we've ever done? The long, Moby Dick deserves a suitably epic context, A, and B, I doubt it. Yeah. Is there a word for that style of essay that this book seems to be drawing on, like the kind that a Francis Bacon or somebody writes where they just hold a subject up to the light and they look at every single facet of well, it? Well, it's like, it is the original essay. It's like the ones that Montaigne would have written. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just, I think just an essay. Just an essay. Like okay. The classical understanding of an essay. Mm-hmm. The way we would probably think of it today would be like a personal essay. Right. Where you just take one yeah. thing and just, you just like, once more to the lake. I'm just going to think about the pond that my father used to take me to. And I'm just going to talk about everything I can about that pond. I have, a, for some reason, I have a book of Francis Bacon essays, the famous scientist guy, Elizabethan. And, it's all that. It's actually the thing that reminds me most of Ishmael's style and yeah. Moby Dick because it's just like, let's talk about marriage. And then he'll develop this wackadoodle extended metaphor about marriage and it'll go on and on. And it's actually quite interesting. Yeah, fan. Montaigne and Bacon, they were great at it. Yeah. And those sort of contemplative essays. I mean, let's just look up Montaigne and see what people call his essay style. Yeah, it's not. It's distinct from like the personal essay. It's distinct from a New yeah. Yorker essay or something like that. It's more faux scientific and kind of faux objective in some ways. But it's not like, this is my marriage. It's like, let me state something about all of marriage or all of childhood or whatever. Yeah, I think it's just known as just the, essay. the essay. The original. Yeah. Like what an essay used to be as opposed to what... We either think of it now because of the New Yorker or because of bad high school teachers. Mm -hmm. So Mm. more along the essay, like a C.S. Lewis would have written too. Sure. Yeah. Because he would like the weight of glory. He just takes that idea of glory and he just dwells on it. Right. In a more modern style, but still. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, technically this whole book is just one huge essay on 
the whale. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, um, a, a philosophy, a theology, a yeah. Sorry, to, that may be stealing your thunder because I think I borrowed that from you, Nathan. But. No, no, but I, I stole it from somebody else. I, I listened to a critic who said the really the proper way to think about this book is as a theology. And if you think about it, if you compare it, if you've read a book of theology, if you've read Calvin's Institutes or something like that, yeah. and you compare it to what, what, what that book does with God, this book does with whaling. With Leviathan. I'm, it's like we're going to look at it from every aspect. We are never going to actually capture everything about the central mystery but we're going to capture as many different facets as we can with as many different helpful in, in metaphors sense, as we can. It's a, it's kind of puritanical, which is where a where a Nathaniel Hawthorne right would you know you see that influence and overlap there too. Yeah. Also, another, that's the wrong use of the word puritanical. Well, but people I think like the Puritan, I mean just just Puritan. Books, Actually, like during that Puritan. during yeah. that same point in time when his mom changed their name, mm -hmm. she did do a brief foray into Dutch Calvinism, mm -hmm. and so he had some of that influence as well. That doesn't shock me. And so, yeah, which would have, I mean, later he kind of became burned out on Christianity, and which is why he and Hawthorne were such great buds. But. Yeah. And the sort of naturalist movement you see with like Thoreau in here as well. So the move away from that, but more towards, oh, what, what's it called? Universalism, the universalist movement. Mm -hmm. He wasn't like buddy buddies with Emerson and Thoreau, but you can definitely see some of that influence here. Sure. In the sense that nature can be our religious text. Right. And you this see that more like- of a deist kind of- Yeah. So I just, we just went to, for my daughter's graduation trip out to the Sierra Nevadas. And that's where John Weir first did all his adventures. And so I've been reading some John Weir stuff after that because he did the John Weir, Weir trail and stuff. And you see the same thing there that you go to the forest as your cathedral. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so I mean, here it's deeply your, rooted in. And that, I mean, if we want to say. In the sea as. An American, that like is an American thing. Yeah, know? very much. Yeah. So <laughs> like I, I had cousins growing up and uncles that were like, you know, fishing is my church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hear that all the time down here. Yeah. Like uh, that's just that people and people think that they can say that and then they've ended the conversation with you. I've never felt more closely connected to God than when I'm out. I got a catfish in my hand. Mm -hmm. When I'm in the woods hunting, when I'm yeah. out in nature or whatever and therefore I that is my church and I don't need your church and I don't need any church and yeah. And I, in fact, I'm more spiritual than you religious hypocrites because I go out and connect with God to nature. Yeah. It's like, yeah, buddy, or, well, which yeah. that's a digression. One critic I was looking at here that actually was pretty helpful because I think she kind of pinpointed something that's important about Melville's distinction from a Hawthorne is she pointed out that even though they both had that same sort of atheistic approach towards nature, that nature can be our God <laughs> and that we need mm -hmm. to get away from society and its constraints, mm -hmm. that the one thing that Melville doesn't seem to be able to escape is the reality that despite himself, a God does exist mm -hmm. and that that God is angry with him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I don't think he, he can escape that, can he? No. And that's, that's, like, that's the irony of Moby Dick is that Moby Dick is this thing that people keep trying to interpret in various ways. But the one thing that Moby Dick keeps, the whale himself keeps, this the critic was saying this, I don't think he was a Christian either, mm -hmm. that for Melville keeps representing is the idea that there is something that exists beyond us and that that something is holding us responsible for things that we're angry at it right. for holding us That something is not ultimately knowable and it's not benign, yeah. but we are angry at it for certainly pursuing something. us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that it's kind of a good reading of the book, actually. Yeah. So still haven't touched on the last two things. <laughs> One of them is just kind of an aside, but I do think it's really important just for understanding context, since that's what we're supposed to be doing with this, to understand how important the whaling industry was for America and for the world at the time. One of the things I was listening to made this observation, I thought it was fascinating, that the thing that replaced the whaling industry and its importance, do you know what caused the downfall of the whaling industry? It wasn't, it wasn't hunting whales to extinction. It was oil. Yeah. Petroleum. Yep. Yeah. So they were the Exxon and the shale of the 1800s. Yep. That's what the whaling industry was. You can get was. your oil from land without ever having to go yeah. on the sea and mm-hmm. hunt a whale. Yeah. It was used you for- You can drill. Yeah. It was used for leather there. making. It was used for candles. It was used for dresses. It was used for, I mean, it was just everywhere, right? just like petroleum is today. And it just, you can't under, you can't overstate how important the whaling industry was for the economy at the time. And so, because this seems like an antiquated thing for us, right? Mm-hmm. But the equivalent would be someone writing about someone going to the oil fields, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, only you have to slay dragons to yeah get the exactly oil. and so and he plays with that reality right mm-hmm. the fact that this is an old thing and used to like it kind of people today when they think about the old good Christian fighting that used to happen right based based on what things are like today or something he thinks about the fact that used to people pursued whales with nobility mm-hmm. now we pursue them for economy. Right? Isn't there that kind of parallel? Like wars used to actually mean something. Now today they're just for money. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That same sort of parallel is happening in this book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I do think that as we approach this, it's, or as people read it, it, it's important to keep in mind that whaling was really important f- for these people. And so this is kind of like an expose of here's what is behind all the oil you use. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that would have been part of the fascination. People would have been like, oh yeah, a novel about whaling. That'd be like you, someone publishes a book about what it is to like do what I do. I go out and I work for petroleum mm-hmm. industries. And then instead I write this philosoph- philosophical meditation on America and have like maybe two chapters on. But it's a little bit work. more like one of those great anti-capital, like, like there will be blood or something. Here's yeah. the megalomaniacal genius that must lurk behind what you take for granted, that kind of thing. Except in the end, it doesn't seem to be a condemnation of it, right? No. It, it's not a condemnation of whaling like all these, like there will be blood is kind of a condemnation of right. whale, right? Yeah. Instead, there's like this appreciation and love for the thing and taking it and using it, using this thing that dominates all of our life to then be a metaphor for all of us as well. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it'd be like if someone did that, but also were then in love with the pursuit of oil as well. Mm-hmm. So is that fair? I think so. In love and slash just as regarded it as an inexorable, inevitable fact of life. That's just, yeah. n- doesn't really matter how we feel about it. It's there. Yeah. Cause I don't think that like, this is some, of course you get the political readings today that are like, this is a excoriation of like the Trump era. <laughs> yes. Right. And you're just like, now uh, was, was Trump a contemporary with Melville? I don't think so. Okay. Just <laughs> and I don't think Melville was a prophet either, but <laughs> in other words, they're saying that like he saw everything that capitalism would inevitably become. And I think, I think he actually just saw what any society inevitably becomes and that on board that ship, you have a little cosmos of all of us. Mm-hmm. Like that's the fascination of the coin, the doubloon chapter mm-hmm. is that Ahab puts his perspective on it, but then Starbuck gives his interpretation and yeah. down and down and down until finally you get little pips mad. <laughs> 
<laughs> poor old Pip. <laughs> poor old Pip. Yeah, poor Pip, actually. Okay. If you'd been left adrift. I know. Oh, man. We'll talk about that, but man. <clears throat> stub. Stub. Yeah, stub's great. Yeah. Although I may have skimmed a stub soliloquy or two. Yeah. His, his voice got a little Cucumber's the word. Yeah. <laughs> right, isn't he the one that says that? Yeah, I mean, he's always saying cutesy stuff Cucumber's like that. the word to be cool as a cucumber. Yeah. Okay, so the last thing <laughs> is to talk about how he became known as Melville today. Like, mm. how did Melville become Go the guy who died in obscurity yeah. to Melville? That does actually, unfortunately, Nathan, get us to modernism. <laughs> All things... <laughs> In my imagination, <laughs> come back to modernism. World modernism, War One. It was a brutal war. <laughs> modernism is my white whale. I cannot escape it. I never will escape it. Paris, the and jazz. At this age. point, I just accepted it. <laughs> Hemingway got into a boxing ring with Gertrude Stein. His bull bore down on them. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's it. That would be fun. Yeah. Gertrude Stein versus Hemingway. I wonder who would win. I don't know. <laughs> Talk about a guy, though, who was like the inheritor of Melville and yet just oh, still wishes. a shadow. He I know, wishes. that's what I mean. It's yeah. just still just a pale shadow of him. Melville represents what every American writer wants to be, mm -hmm. the guy who goes out and does and is a man mm -hmm. and then comes back and writes the great novel. Mm -hmm. And anyways. Yeah, so in the early 20th century, you had this re-examination of what the American novel was. This one guy actually wrote an essay I think it was before the turn of the 20th century, actually, or the 19th century, but still 20th century. Yes, the turn of it, mm -hmm. whatever, where he was thinking this through, right? So this was already in the American imagination. His, his candidate was Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom Cabin. Wow. Yeah, that's what he thought is maybe, but he also said maybe it hasn't been written yet. Mm -hmm. so I think he may have been, well, no, because Harriet, that was written, that was published a year after Moby Dick. So Moby Dick was there. Mm -hmm. The actual group of guys though that brought Moby Dick back to the American imagination were the modernists and the reason is is because with modernism as we've discussed many many times before what was important for them was making it new that was Ezra Pound's motto make it new and not only make it new like explode things mm -hmm. and then be playful and be experimental and be bold with your writing and that's what they were all trying to do post World War II and World War I because you know everything was meaningless and so D.H. Lawrence, who was one of the modernists over in Britain, was writing an essay on the American tradition. And he argued in that book that Moby Dick was one of the great American novels. And because of his championing of it, people began to reassess Moby Dick and to reassess Melville. And he began to trickle down into the university classes and then trickle down into the American imagination. And thanks to the modernists and thanks to their incessant desire to make it new and to find things that did make it new, people re-examined Moby Dick and realized that it was a great masterwork mm. and the rest is history. There you go. Yeah. And so you do have the modernists to thank for having Mo Moby Dick in front of us. And when you read this book, it actually makes sense, right? This is like the, this, like you said, Hemingway wishes that he was Melville. Mm -hmm. This kind of is style aside because they would have been, they would have never written like this. This is kind of the book they all were trying to write. This is what the Wasteland wanted to be. Yeah, I was going to say the more cumbersome modernists are the ones yeah. that seem more directly downstream, your Joyce or your... Yeah, this is, yeah exactly. Uh, this is Virginia what Joyce, or, this is what T.S. Eliot, this is what they were trying to do. Yeah. Very Ulysses is trying to yeah. be... 
This is just more readable than Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but Ulysses, Lawrence, if you want to out Melville, Melville, Ulysses, Ulysses is basically all you've got left because Melville's yeah. already fractured the form so much that all you can do is take a hammer to the pieces of glass and make it into. You have to take a hammer to the language, sand, right? Because yeah. that's all you had left to do was yeah. start playing with language since form was already played out. But Melville also, for all the transgressiveness of this novel, doesn't actually cross any lines sexually especially and so that no, was, you that was the, left to our wonderful modernist friends you get the chapter that really bothers people because queer theory really tries to take this book and do something with it mm-hmm. but they keep running their heads against the chapter where Queequeg and Ishmael are in bed together but nothing happens mm-hmm. and it's like the most innocent chapter ever written I, I have to say maybe I'm just too debauched living in the era that I do and being downstream of Queer theory as I am, but I wasn't convinced that nothing happened in that chapter. Just reading it really? again, I was like, "Oh, hey, Ishmael, just, you guys have your legs wrapped around each other and stuff. That's and you're passing a time of contemplation together. That's something." Hmm. And then I, of course, looked it up, and people have been saying, speculating about Melville's sexuality, not just in modern times, but I read a Mogum. Of course, Mogum was gay, but I read a. Yeah, uh, everybody Mogum. was gay to Mogum. Yeah. <laughs> Read a Mogum epi- essay on Melville being gay. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of direct as evidence, only speculation. But Yeah. I mean, it's, people speculate that Luther was gay. Right. I mean, just I mean he had a wife. He didn't love her. But or C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I mean, just because you happen to be friends with someone else, suddenly yeah, you're gay. Yeah, the best evidence like that they had. 50 years from now, people are going to listen to this podcast and think we were all gay for each other. Yeah, well, that's true. Hopefully... It'll be a different era and people will be like, three male friends, a normal yeah, thing that happens in these times. No, all they had was that Melville had a pretty cold relationship with his wife by the end and that he, he did tend to fixate on male friends. He had a, yeah. you know, a Hawthorne phase and a, stuff like that. But I mean, people- yeah, that's, that's true. But I think that, I think that's just because his obsessive imagination just kept him from being able to be a good father and a good husband. Mm-hmm. I think the big the I think the closest literary analog we have to him is Tolstoy. Their lives were even pretty similar. So except Tolstoy had some success. <laughs> Tolstoy was a count <laughs> yeah. with lots of money. <laughs> Shows up in Solzhenitsyn's novels later as like the person everybody's going yeah. out of their way to I mean, see. The dumb thing about Tolstoy, Tolstoy thought he needed to be Melville to to be spiritual. Like, oh, I better go out in the snow in my bare feet. Yeah, Melville just wished that he could be Tolstoy. Right. <laughs> so that's just swapped. They, just, they, they both could have been happier. That's the anxiety of influence right there. The they just both wished that they were each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're not happy with being themselves. Yeah. And neither of them realized that they had done the thing that they wanted to do, which was write some of the greatest literary works to have ever been written. Yeah, the great Russian novel. Anna if Karenina, only we could go obviously. back in time and just tell Melville who he would become. <laughs> be nice. Yeah. But we be, can't. We can't. He's rotting in the ground. We could dig up a shin bone. And beat in Austin over the head with haters oh. over the head with it. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Any more context? Any... No, that's that's. I think I got onto every, got everything off my list. Everything off your list. What about your chest? No, there's still lots on my chest. Okay, <laughs> hair, <laughs> your shirt. Yeah. What else on your chest? Rolls of fat. <laughs> Rolls of fat. Thanks. Hey, hey. Brandon is fat. You got to use it. I was just Brandon. trying to. See, thy name is Brandon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what's that sound? 
it's the baggage plane going over. It's somebody opening up Hoover Dam. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There baggage we go. plane. It's circling again. <laughs> oh, no. It's shooting at us. Oh, everybody, duck, duck. Oh, no. It stirred oh. up that field of crickets. <laughs> Hide. Shh. That cricket thinks Brandon's fat. Brandon's fat. <laughs> Shut up, cricket. I ate it. Kill it. All right. Oh, I'm so sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. It's fun how I can combine the mix and match. Yeah. All right. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. What is going on? There we go. That was going so well, too. Guys, the baggage plane. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> the baggage plane is circling over, and that indicates that it is time for baggage check. You know how planes have baggage. You got to check your baggage. We all bring baggage to Moby Dick. Jake, what kind of baggage did you bring <clears throat> to this novel? So I've never read Moby Dick. Did you have to read Bartleby in high school like many people? If did? I did, I don't remember it. So I don't have any. He has an awfully forgettable story. Are you doing like a meta thing? Because Bartleby's, yeah. 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 Very, very cute, clever, and Thank I tip you. my hat to you. Thank Frailty, you. Thy name is <laughs> <laughs> Great, Brandon. <laughs> Oh, the passive-aggressive uses of a soundboard. Text becomes text. <laughs> uh, <coughs> no, Bartleby, yeah, whatever. <clears throat> so I have no, I don't really, I mean, Bartleby, the Scrivener, whatever, I don't know. I don't remember anything about it if I've read it. So I don't, I don't feel like I bring much baggage to Melville himself. What I do bring to Melville is the kind of person who thinks they love Melville and also... yes. Just my own sort of, uh, we've had this, sort of this conversation. We, we've we started it and never really finished it, kind of continued it. I think we started it actually reading Chronicles of Narnia. There's two basic types of people, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader type of person or the Silver, silver Chair type of person. Mm-hmm. So first, the kind of person who reads and loves and thinks they love Melville as, has this sort of kind of colored. You have, on the one hand, you have, the other people are like, oh, I don't know, Mo- Moby Dick really sucks. It is so boring and dry, and you've got the whiteness of the whale and the many uses of whale blubber, and, the, and that's just the whole book is just like all this, like, why do I, you need a philosophy behind, you know, the many uses of oil, like what what in the world is going on and why did people like this and why do you think of people? Why do you think I'll peep it? Why do you think I'll people? Why do you think I'll people? Why, why do you think I'll peep it's good? And <laughs> cucumbers, the word. <laughs> and, and then <laughs> that should be good. That should get a place on the soundboard, I think. <laughs> cucumbers, the word. Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. So there's that, right? And then there's like the person on the opposite end of that who's, I mean, I have one particular person in mind who's representative. And there may be different types that like, Moby Dick, who are just like, oh, the whiteness of the whale. It's so deep and profound and its holiness. And it's like, the, it's, how can I plunder this for sort of conservative Christian yeah, aphorisms? Like Christian, and, not, yeah. Did you know this was R.C. Sproul's favorite novel? Mm-hmm. And is there a, a, a better description of the holiness of God than the whiteness of the whale chapter? And and Moby Dick is God, in fact, or represents God. And in and, 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 Wow, this is so deep and profound. They just make you be like, "Oh man, I, well, I know I don't want to read Moby Dick." Mm-hmm. If I was interested in re- reading Moby Dick, I'm now 
interested in not reading Moby Dick in the same way that certain Dostoevsky types. Yes. Sure. Yeah. I right? agree with that. So this, there's that sort of like two different types of aura that have surrounded Moby Dick sort of like a fence that have just made it sort of like, well, that's one place in letters. I'm not going, I'm not especially inclined to go unless I have to go. There. Second thought, let's not go there. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a silly place. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's all of that. On the other hand, there's just the baggage that I bring of, I think some of it's growing up in a river town. It's not quite, you know, the sea mm-hmm. or being on the sea, but there, there's it, a waterway and you see barges and stuff go past. Yeah. And they have access to the sea and they're, you know, and sometimes they're going to the sea. And so there is that sort of like, you know, and boat culture really is a thing around here, even though, you know, it's the Ohio River. So it's in, and it's pretty far downstream of Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. And so, you know, most of the boat boat culture is around all the lakes and wetlands and, and things that you find as you get closer to a river than it really is the river itself. You don't really feel good about playing in the, Ohio River. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just some of that that I've I've grown up with, and and just the sense that I really like the open sea adventure type of a thing. Although I, I never read like Hornblower or anything that people typically think of like that. I just really every time I read something like my whole read through of Moby Dick, I just wanted to go on a whaling ship. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go on a voyage. I want yeah. I the 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 sea to me. Maybe I shouldn't rehash this conversation. Maybe I should. But we we had this whole conversation, and we've had, we had it multiple times, that I think has as much to do with personality as anything, where we talk about Brandon loves caves and caving, and I have mm. other friends that love caves and caving. And part of what they love about caves and caving is the limitations, the puzzles, the problem solving, the you're in a tight, confined space, and you've got to figure out your way in and out of it. Yeah, and Brandon's showing off his bruises and his scars from getting the recent caving trip. Yeah, and so it's like it's about pushing yourself to and testing yourself against limits. Yeah, and so you're you are trapped underground, and you have to figure out your way through the tunnel, or you don't survive. And it's mm-hmm. the, it's a sense of adventure and exploration, and the unknown, like this one that we did recently, the one that gave me these bruises. You have to go through this little tunnel, but then you get to this point where. There's the ceiling of the cave goes down and the stream continues under it. Mm-hmm. And you have five inches of airspace above you in the ceiling. And so you just kind of get on your back and just let yourself float for 40 oh, feet. You're making me physically ill. Yeah. Is fast. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that to me is completely unappealing. Yeah. It's claustrophobic. It's like, no. And I, I like problem solving. But what I like in terms of problem solving is the the sea of endless possibilities yeah. and opportunities. And so when it, you know, that's Brandon is a silver chair guy. I'm a, vo- a Don Treader guy. I want to, I, I, I love not knowing that feeling at least. And, you know, maybe it's really different when you're out there actually on the, on the ship, but at least from an adventure perspective, I love that feeling of, man, what's just beyond the horizon. You never mm-hmm. know. You may have any number of problems and challenges that you have to face and problem solve, but the you know endless possibilities are what's before you. In you know you don't know what tomorrow's adventure is going to be, and maybe that means you're going to go days on end just sort of staring at a blank, empty sea. But you know you're always ready and 
anything can pop up on the horizon at any point. Lewis does in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is, you know, each he has a different adventure for each island and you have yep. right. that succession of of events. But I just really love all of that. So I really, really just have enjoyed living in the world of being on this boat. I love one of my favorite images from Moby Dick, which I know is also one of yours. Nathan is just the the whole chapter about being on the the, the crow's nest. Mm-hmm. The masthead. Yeah. The masthead. Yeah. yeah. And you, you're on top of the world and the whole ship is sort of teetering beneath you. And but be um, careful that you don't drowse too deeply because mm-hmm. then you'll fall. And Yeah. I have, I have that quote somewhere in my notes. I might read it later. Yeah. But yeah, well, this book so puts you in touch with, as, as some academic that I listened to said, the abyssal nature of the sea. Right. And that's, a, that's the other part of it too, is just that sense you know, when the Genesis th- frames the heavens being divided into the waters above and the waters below, and that sense that the sea is in fact an abyss mm-hmm. that you can you can be suspended above, right? And that's all a boat is is just a little vessel suspended above a, an abyss, and who knows what's under there? Well, you read the story, or you see the things about. There's a beach where I don't remember where this is, but you're out on the beach, and you know there's a couple of feet of sand. But if you swim out a little bit, then suddenly you're over you're, a you're, great big hole. You're basically over a Grand Canyon sized thing that just goes into the depths of the earth. I mean, it's and you don't. It's awe inspiring, and it's and you can't scary. get down there. And anything could come out of it. And it's amazing how much unconquered terrain, you know, we're so proud of ourselves, man, because we've conquered 30% of the world, basically. But there's 70% of it that is still completely untamed and is full of monsters. And this book really puts you in touch it with that. It does such a good job of yeah. evoking that. And that whole, I've always loved that that conceit. And I don't remember when it first occurred to me, but the first time it ever occurred to me it was probably just watching some dumb shark week or something like mm-hmm. that. But the idea that because we have classified and named these beasts, these monsters, that they're not monsters now is just such an absurd joke. Mm-hmm. It is such a joke. And when we laugh and look down our noses at, you know, the medievals or whoever, because they talked about the, the, the sea monsters. And of course we all know that those were actually just whales. Or actually, just sharks. It's just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Let's ask the the captain of the Essex about that. What is what is? Yeah, what is he exactly. Think? It's like these are these are this is Leviathan, mm-hmm. and so you take those two things and you put them together, and I I just was in awe of this book, especially I think as much the first half. Actually, he had me just from what's that little section? He just has that little extracts section yeah, yeah, the, before the book actually starts before call me Ishmael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I read every single one of those things and was just like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. I'm on board here. Yeah. He's setting the stage and he's giving me that sense of mystery and awe and wonder about the beast we know as Leviathan. And, and it just sort of like reenchant anything that reenchants the world gives back that sense of awe and wonder and majesty and awfulness or terror mm-hmm. is, is like crack. And I love, li- <clears throat> I love living there. Be- <clears throat> I love living there because we work so hard to make everything so tame and so prosaic. And yeah. even our documentaries are, are, are doing d- sort of a double speak talking out both sides of their mouth where they're like, 
the ma- you've got David Attenborough talking about the majesty of this or that thing that they're actually in effect trying to make really small, mm-hmm. make it feel like you can contain it, that you can yeah. understand You can understand it. a polar bear. You can understand a, yeah. Yeah. a whale. And it's still, there is something about the sea that, so you would think that after two centuries, things would have changed enough that we would know so much about the ocean that a lot of this wouldn't be true anymore. Yeah, but, but there is something is... about the immensity of the ocean that even today, what scientists say, we know less about our ocean than we do about space. Is yeah, that, that's about like, like the moon. Is that true? About, right. I think that's certainly a thing that's certainly because that they kind of thrown thing. around. Yeah, yeah. We we know less. At least we consider things like the Mariana Trench and yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. As this as this mail says, I have a I I got ninety pages of quotes. I pared them down, so bear with me. I won't be reading ninety pages of quotes, but every line of this book is a good line, memorable. But he says it is some systematized exhibi- ex- exhibition of the whale in his broad genera that I would now fain put before you. Yet it is no easy task. The classification of the constituents of a chaos. Nothing less is here essayed. Yeah. And yeah. So I love so much how good a job he did of evoking that mm-hmm. sense of mystery and awe and wonder that I resisted the whole way through the book, The Temptation, to like look up video, to look up pictures, to look up documentaries, to look up anything, to find the movie. The like, only thing that I looked up was when he was making fun of people's drawings. Mm-hmm. I tried to see if I could find those. Oh, those drawings, yeah, yeah, the yeah. ones he was making fun of. Like the guy who, that wasn't a whale, it was a squash. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good good chapter. Yeah. Okay, well, that's some good baggage. I think my baggage is similar. I mean, I do, anytime I go to Florida or the East or West Coast and stand and watch the ocean, I am in awe of it, as I suppose many people are. I love the little section in chapter one or chapter two where he's just like, he's just, why do people find themselves staring at the sea? And he just describes the allure and that is wonderful. And, you know, as a horror guy, the the awe, the terror, the the majesty, the dark allure, you know, I mean, the way that the, the ocean is described in this book, it kind of almost has that queasy feeling of when you're standing on some great height and you just kind of feel like I want to jump, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of that kind of temptation he really gets at. I, I in terms of my broader baggage, I, I just think we'd be hard pressed to name a book that's been more poorly served by the people that talk about it. I guess it's the book's fault or it's the book's grandeur that it's impossible to describe what it does. And so you hear about it your whole life. You hear about it as a kid, you get your great illustrated classics edition that cuts it down to, you know, a hundred pages and people kind of say, you know, it's, it's about the hunt for a whale which is just like 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 saying Dracula is about a European count that leaves Transylvania and visits Europe. You know, it's just like it doesn't even begin to tell you anything about what the book does. And and then you have the equal and opposite thing, like what Jake was talking about, the people that want to grab hold of it as some kind of profound something or other. And it just neither one of those really gives you a picture of the book. You can't get a picture of the book. I mean, it's it's as unattainable, as unassailable as Moby Dick himself finding what this book actually is. Well, and part of it, at least I think, is, I don't know, test me on this or challenge me on it. 
I think this is a book that you have to, you're only ready for it when you're ready for it. I think that's true. I think and that's true. so it's like, it's not a book that I want to give to many people. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. It, it, because it, it, some of that's don't cast your pearls before swine. And some of it's just like, man, I would not have been, I don't know. I don't know if it wasn't for the booking, if I would be, would have been ready for this book. Yeah, you yeah, need a grasp of literature. You kind of need a grasp of theology and philosophy. I mean, not to be yep. a snob about it, but you got to bring something to this. Well, book. you have, you and you have to, play. and part of you just has to bring a love of the of of the process of reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yeah, this is a book not for someone who wants to mine a book to find what's good about it, but for someone who actually enjoys reading. They like to absorb words. They like to. They, they don't just like ideas. They like getting ideas that way. They like existing yeah. in the written word. It is a book for book lovers, for sure. Uh, the only other piece of baggage I want to talk about real quick is the Patrick Stewart TV movie, which I saw when I was a kid and was a little bit hard to get out of my head. Uh, it's good. I mean, Patrick Stewart bounds around the ship and says all the famous dialogue and has delivers the monologues like only Patrick Stewart can. But it's got a lot of really cheesy early 2000s or late 90s CGI stuff, which is kind of what actually sticks in my head. It, it does have one cool scene, the way that they do, at least in my memory, which is, you know, this is several decades ago, where the, what is it called? I forget what the phenomenon, the green fire. Yeah. The green fire on the oh, ship. Yeah. Oh, St. Elmo's. Yeah. St. The, 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 Elmo's um, fire. Yeah. That, that, that section is pretty cool in the movie. I mean, I don't think they do anything special with it, but it just was not something that I expected to see in him. I didn't realize that was part of the story. But I think I'd probably tried to read this a few times as a teenager or as someone who just wanted to kind of encounter all the great works of literature when I was kind of in that phase. Could never get through it. Did get hung up on, probably just hung up on how long it takes to get out of the the Queequeg section. I mean, there's just a lot of Queequeg and Queequeg's culture and mm-hmm. all that stuff, which I loved now. I mean, it's fascinating and fun and delightfully pagan, but never could beat it back. I mean, did, probably didn't, never even got on, on the ship when I was a kid, but I've read it now twice. And I, yeah, I think it's one of the best books we've read on the bookening in the top three or four. I think it is the great American novel as we've already Said, so we found it. Yeah, Brandon, your baggage. Yeah, I think this is the third time I've read it. First time was as an undergraduate. Second, time, I think I had tried it in my teenage years back when I was reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and never, never finished it. I don't believe back then, but did finish it as an undergrad because it was part of a class. And at that point, it didn't do a whole lot for me. But then I had it with a good professor here at IU and loved it the second reading. And this time it was as good as I remembered. Mm-hmm. I think Jake's right. I do think that that's a book that you don't just come to unless you have an understanding of what else has happened mm-hmm. in literary history. I, I just don't know that I would have loved this book and appreciated it even just a couple of years ago on the level that I do now. Yeah, I do think that it's great that this is coming in our f- fifth or sixth year. Yeah, I think this is I year it, six. It makes sense. Yeah. Like people who were wondering why we hadn't done it before if we had because, done it, I'm <laughs> afraid of what we might have done in our first year. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. actually, like, I'm, a, I'm happy that we waited as long as we did with Brothers Kramazov, too. Yeah. Like, we didn't do Dostoevsky in our first year. Because mm-hmm. it helps you put him in his place. Yeah, he's not a Tolstoy, but 
whatever his worth is, it helps to have context. It helps to have context because I, I think I like Brothers K more than maybe you guys did. Mm-hmm. But you sure did. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyways, there. I mentioned him because yes, there are the type of people that hold on to both of these authors. I've been trying to figure out why. I think that part of it is because even though Melville had sympathies with Ahab, mm-hmm. in the end, he is an Ishmael. Right. And his voice and the tone of the narrator, you just like the storyteller yeah. that's in this book. And if you like narratives that are driven by a specific voice and character, mm-hmm. then this is a great book because he can make chapters on well skeletons mm-hmm. really fun to read. Yeah. Right? I mean, part of <clears throat> part of the appeal for anybody with being a Moby Dick fan or a Dostoevsky fan is feeling like you're in the exclusive smart kids club Mm -hmm. of people who, well, that's yeah. And so that's where, that's where the crossover is. And the Venn diagram is the people who think they get it. Right. Right. That Moby Dick is hard and it's not for everybody. And so that if you can make yourself like it, or maybe there's something in you that does like it, then yeah, you're part of this cult that understands Moby Dick. And so, but then those people are generally the one they go around and they just, they actually end up misrepresenting it because it's all about the transcendent philosophy that Melville actually kind of makes fun of at places too. Mm-hmm. Like these people who think they know, mm-hmm. right? That's the part of this point of this book is that that's the type of person that it was, it's fun. It's like generally philosophers. And yet he spends a whole lot of his time making fun of philosophers because mm-hmm. as an undergrad, one of the things that stuck with me, like he's really good at making these metaphors that really shape your thinking. And so I was a philosophy minor and had the tendency if things had gone poorly to become like one of these Dostoevsky fanboys. Mm-hmm. Right. Tolstoy had me though. It, he had me at hello. Mm-hmm. He had me at not every marriage or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyways, that scene where is it Tashtigo? Is that how you say his name? I think so, yeah. He falls into the sperm whale's head mm-hmm. and he says, so have some people drowned falling into the honeyed head of Plato or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that like, I was like, yeah, he's right. You can get so far up your own. Took us. Took us that you'd die in these philosophers. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that metaphor stuck with me and kind of was a good medicine for realizing that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Yeah. 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 That you could spend. So like you could spend your whole life thinking you had figured out what the whiteness of the whale is, or you had figured out what Moby Dick represents. Mm-hmm. And his whole point is that that's just ridiculous. You're, that's like, that's pointless. You're not going to. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like that corny old, who is it? What, where's the meta? I don't know where the metaphor comes from, but uh, one blind man feels the thing and says it's a this. And one yeah. blind is because he was holding the trunk of the elephant and the yeah. thing of the elephant. It's like, we can look at Moby Dick. We can look at the whale. We can look at the ocean from every angle and still never have a comprehensive so yeah picture so, of it. so my baggage is i actually had read him as an undergrad and back in texas for whatever reason we did have some dostoevsky fanboys but we didn't have moby dick fanboys mm-hmm. it wasn't until i moved here that i met guys like that yeah and i had already read the book and had already read so i was kind of like what in the world did they read it's kind of like when you talk to a Dostoevsky fanboy, you're kind of like, what did you read? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. have you ever read Brothers Karamazov? Because it's not just what you're talking about here. And it's like, have you ever read Moby Dick? Because it's not just all doom and gloom and transcendence. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. But anyways, so that's kinda, most that was the... my perspective on, because it, it was a phenomenon here with specific sure. people. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> I think most of the books like Moby Dick that have that allure to that kind of person also have something purient. Like Dostoevsky is going to have some murders and some sexuality and stuff like that. You know, some kind of a hook 
it's the book about the man that kills the old lady with the axe. You know, Harpoon in this case. Something like that. But Moby Dick really, unless you're into whales, doesn't have that kind of... The s- absolute Satanism of Ahab. Right, but you don't get that early <laughs> enough and the book's not famous enough to make like a horror guy read it. Yeah. Right? The horror guy might be very happy if he read it. I well, and also, so the thing that I... The other thing is I think that even though Melville sympathizes with Ahab, mm-hmm. I think in the end he's an Ishmael. Yeah. And I think Dostoevsky is an Ahab. Right. That he was just monomaniacally obsessed with like this one idea of our psychological depravity and how, and that's just like, that's all he, mm-hmm. that was, was his obsession. And so these guys that become obsessed with him, yeah, there is that prurience there. But then when they try to become obsessed with Moby Dick, it's not quite. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, for one thing, it's not notes from the underground man or whatever. We're not yeah. actually living in Ahab's head. We get, relatively little Ahab actually for as for as powerful of an influence yeah, as he exists. Sympathize with Dostoevsky's characters insofar as you sympathize with Dostoevsky. Right. But if Dostoevsky wrote this book, it would be from Ahab's point of view. We'd live in Ahab's head for six hundred pages and then we'd go we'd drown with Ahab. Yeah. And Melville's just not like that. He's going to abandon Ishmael at multiple points to give us Ahab. He's not above just saying, oh well, I don't know how Ishmael knew about this, but here's a Here's Ahab's inner monologue now for some reason. Well, it's more that Ishmael is above, not above making things up. Right. Not above just projecting, yeah. projecting imagining. And, and saying yeah. this is probably what Starbuck was saying. Right. And it was the yeah. weirdest Shakespearean kind of yeah. <laughs> comedy scene. <laughs> not yeah. Starbuck, but Stubb. <laughs> well, yeah, that whole the balloons. Scene, yeah, the, yeah. They all come in and yeah, they all take uh, their turn. And Flask is just like, I wonder how many cigars I could buy with this thing. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, guys, that ushers us into the big picture. You hear that sound of the camera shutter bringing us into the part of the show where we... Well, hang on. This is I get my six-shooter out so I can shoot it. Right, is the cameraman dead now? He should oh, be shoot him again. And kill him. Brandon mean- <laughs> hey, get cameraman, him again. don't get say him. that. <laughs> All right, we got him. As his last words. <laughs> yeah, we, so we've already... Put it on his tombstone. I think we've already kind of talked about the big picture of this pizza, book, but uh, what, what other general thoughts do you guys what? have? <laughs> <laughs> what are, whoops. Oh, sorry, folks. Oh, no. <laughs> no, we have to do our badge again. Oh, no. Hey, bad I'll play. Those characters died last year. Yeah, yeah, they're all dead. They're all dead. The mysterious phantom will not come back. He never will. He won't be in any episodes this year, I can guarantee you. So any other big picture thoughts about this thing before we move on more specifically to characters and stuff like that? I mean, I think we've mostly said it all, right? Like there's, it's hard to to talk about a book that breaks with form so Mm -hmm. much. And we've already looked at the one person who says, well, it's an adventure story and said, well, you're an idiot. We didn't read the same book or you're actually, you're just a liar. And you're saying that so that you can convince a 16 year old boy to read it or whatever. Right. And we look at the person who says it's a philosophy of life and say, well, not really, (laughs) not really. But also, I mean, part of what makes it difficult to talk about is that it is yes. And, all it's all those ab- things. It's yeah. all of those things all at once. And it is all things and nothing. Unique way. It, it, in the sense that, like, <clears throat> we had that conversation about War and Peace and Tolstoy's insistence that War and Peace is not a novel. It's yeah. something completely different, right? It's its own thing. If anything, actually, 
If anything, it's the greatest novel ever written. What's that? War and Peace. Did you suffer brain damage one. and forget about Anna Karenina? Yeah. Anna Karenina is better. Oh. But but M- Moby Dick actually is a better candidate for saying it, it's kind of in a genre of its own. It's a it's novel, just own, not yeah. a novel. Yeah. It's a novel that's not a novel. It's it's, you it's, a, it's it a novel as... that's a treatise that's also a play, but that's also... It would not be unfair to say it is Poetry. a book-length essay on whales. I mean, it really is that. But that it's also a fictionalized telling of the person who wrote the essay. Right. And now he came to the And it's completely character-driven at the same time. Yeah. Right. And it's just, it's so just it's, really, really hard to talk about. Yeah. It just is its own. It is what it is. And anyhow, from a big-picture perspective, I think I think that's what what needs to be said about it. Or reiterated, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I would add is if you hate language, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but I don't know why you would read this book. It's not, again, it's not one that you can simply strip mine for its ideas, for its philosophies, for its characters. So, so much so, of it's the poetry. The poetry, yeah. This is, this, is, this is a book of poetry. There's just so many wonderful lines, so many memorable metaphors, so many just things that only words can do. It's, it's one of, you, you cannot make a movie out of this because a movie simply would not do what this book does, which is just pile up metaphors, a big old mountain of metaphors. And he's going to make everything a metaphor and everything a parable. And somebody is going to fall in a whale's head and it's going to turn into a metaphor about philosophy. Drowning in philosophy, yeah. Right. They're cutting the tail so the sharks don't eat it and it turns into a thing on life and death. I don't remember exactly. You know, we're all hovering over the abyss. And if I just... The, dwell the, on the cord could be cut anytime. He's going to dwell on the concept of fast fish and loose fish mm-hmm. and apparently become very important for legal theory. Yeah. Legal. They like teach that in law school, that chapter. Yeah. About so that they can help understand property law. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's just its own thing. I, I really, I, I'm glad that I think last time we were all together, we talked about Hemingway, good old Hemi and his, what did we do? What's the name of that novel? It also rises like the sun. It also rises like the sun. Farewell to arms. <laughs> Farewell Part two. to the moon. Yeah. Fellow, uh, Farewell to pants. I, I I just love the fact that like like we love Hemingway. We love the iceberg theory. We love things that are simple, that are concise, that are doing a lot with a little. But every once in a while, it's nice to just read somebody who is not operating under that theory even a little bit. This is the kitchen sink book. Like yeah, I'm going to throw in every thought. If yeah. I can describe why describe things something one way when I can describe it five ways. It's the prismatic approach. Yes, the prismatic approach. That's the phrase I was looking for. Shoot. No. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. Oh, Nathan, thank you. I said that's the phrase I'm looking for. What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just like a chef who wants to use every single ingredient mm. in the fridge and in the cupboard. And yeah, that usually goes so well. <laughs> well, it usually turns out like crap. And I'd say our our dint, if that's the word I want in the booking, is to not like those people. You know, we're a little hard on Ray Bradbury for being purple and getting too excited. But we like Bradbury. Yeah, too. we like Bradbury well enough. But if somebody, you know, Dickens, we've been a little hard on Dickens for putting too many ingredients into his stew, like calm down, Chuck. But 
Melville is one of those guys, like Shakespeare, I mean, would be the obvious one who can just throw yeah, every that's ingredient the one I was thinking about, into Nathan. the can stew. Can you press the crickets button? Yeah. Frailty, thy name uh, is Brandon. That was actually an accident, but... <laughs> <laughs> it didn't look like one. I knew which one you were pressing. <laughs> it was either that one or the... Nathan is fat. Brandon is fat. <laughs> Brandon, Brandon, Brandon is fat. You look like a... Whale? DJ. <laughs> yeah, go with your plankton whale. <laughs> well, Brandon, you look very handsome and svelte. I think you should give us all a passive aggressive board. <laughs> I tried to, I tried to think of a good passive aggressive thing for Jake, but Jake just hasn't done anything wrong on this podcast that I can I can make fun of. So, uh, hopefully there'll be a button for Jake mm. one of these days. Oh, uh, the galaxy. You could do the galaxy quest. Oh, that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. Speaking of which, there's a whole galaxy of other things to talk about in this book. What's that? It's the Hall of Heroes, the horns, bringing us into the Hall of Heroes, where we name the heroes and decide if they measure up. Well, Nathan, I think that this book is actually a book of antiheroes, a drawing from the deep Miltonic traditions <laughs> that, that we're supposed to question the very concept <laughs> of heroism. Uh, Ishmael's not the hero of this book? People make the argument that he's an anti-hero character because he doesn't Ishmael? do anything heroic. He doesn't do anything. He's just the narrator. Well, exactly. He's, he's Queek, not the Queequeg does heroic things. Yeah, you can yeah, say. Yeah, so it's ridiculous. The book is full of heroes. The anti-hero, sh- maybe Ahab, but it's this is a book full of tragic heroes to some extent. Mm-hmm. Like Starbuck is a pretty tragic character. Yeah, I like Starbuck. Starbuck's I like old awesome. Starbuck. Yeah. Because Starbuck won't, in the end, Starbuck is the noblest character and he is the, a good candidate for the tragic hero because he won't stand up to Ahab in the end. Mm-hmm. And it's his, therefore, some of his responsibility. It's a good argument. I think Melville's trying to make an argument as to when mutiny would actually be okay. Right. <laughs> that Starbucks should have started a mutiny. Yes, I agree. It wouldn't have been a, even a mutiny necessarily. It, I, I just think he was well within his rights. Is it this, yeah, he had a happy crazy. family back at home waiting on him. It's not just that. They've abandoned the mission for which the ship was actually chartered. Chartered. Yeah. They're they're not actually <clears throat> obeying the laws. Like there, there are laws that are above Ahab and he's violated every one of them. It, it has all the makings for when it is actually in the province of a godly man to say, No, we've had enough. We need to rebel and depose this tyrant. Yeah, the yeah, the, I mean you take you take the re, the fact that they're not doing what they were commissioned to do that they're putting everyone's lives in danger and that they're going full satanic blasphemy. Yeah, around the time Ahab the is baptizing his harpoon in pagan blood. Yeah, and you find out that he had stowed away some weird... Yeah. Foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Those guys are scary. Those guys are scary. What's the name of the main guy? The Faluda or something like Faluda, that? Faluda, yeah. Faluda. Yeah. Fadula? Fadula. There it is. I mean, they're just eventually. they're just like demonic witch doctors. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean that's part of Ahab's brilliance, though, is that he definitely knew how to out theater everyone else to make <laughs> to kind of intimidate and put them under a spell. Mm-hmm. Even good Starbuck. 
I think the book actually plays fair. So often when one character convinces another character in literature or in a movie, I just feel like, ah, well, you know, they had to fall for that speech because that, then the story wouldn't work if they didn't. But I think he actually writes, for, for as Shakespearean and kind of over the top as it is, I think the scenes where Ahab has to rally the crew and has to manipulate people and has to we even Starbuck. use people. I'm trying to remember really, what really scene well is it that, like, it's the moment where Starbuck fails. He's got the gun. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. just, at that point, you're sitting there and you don't know what else to do, but to just hope he pulls the trigger. Right. Yeah. And then he doesn't. Yeah. But I think Jake, you texted me and said, gee, I hope Starbuck takes out Ahab before you'd gotten to that. Like, like you anticipate, I don't know if you anticipated it coming, but you were just like, yeah, no. that would be the obvious place thing to happen <clears throat> before yeah. you'd even gotten to the yeah. standing outside of the door with the gun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was there for a while just thinking this is the only solution is Starbuck is going to, it's just what you want to happen. It's the thing that feels inevitable. And then, and then yeah, Melville goes there and puts the gun in his hand and has him go all the way up to the edge. It's yeah. Which, which at that point needed to happen. Right. It needed to happen. It, so made it, it was sense of things. It was set up maybe for that to happen, but it did such a good job of making yeah, making sense of it all and making sense of how how you get to the place where everybody dies at the hand of Moby Dick. You 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 have to give Starbuck that level of agency and a rationale for not in order to get there. Well, I think agency is the key to any good tragedy, unless you're a Greek. If you're a Greek, then it's just the gods decided that we're going to die and have sex with our mother, and now it happened. Oh, well. But good. The what I love in a good tragedy is, oh, man, if the priest had just gotten there in time, Romeo and Juliet would have been fine. They had a, a good plan. And Melville gives you several of those, like, Ahab? Pines for home and for his wife at a certain point. He could have made another decision. He's he was not, so close at so so many different times. Right. Starbuck could have gone in and shot him. This whole crew did not need to perish in a whirlpool at the end. Yep. Any number of people had to make any number of choices to get there, which feels much more tragic than just, it was all foreordained. Is there anything else we want to say about Ishmael before we move off of our whoops, Hall of Heroes? I, I don't think so. I do I love mean, his narrative voice. His yeah. narrative voice you guys is already said he's it, like but. this expansive. I think he is. Have you ever read Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman? Only not not like he is kind of like that American. I'm going to sit here and ponder, and part of my greatness is just my ability to take all these things into my imagination and make them into a great story. But unlike some of those transcendentalists, he's got an American sense of cynicism and an American sense of humor. Yeah, in a ground, really, in a ground, in a just kind of. Devil may care. I mean, literally, devil may care. Like, well, the devil take me. I'm. We're all gonna die anyway. Kind of. He's. He's got not admirable qualities exactly, but likable qualities. You can believe that he would actually. It's be Indiana able to Jones. Sit. So there's that anti-hero yeah. kind of. It's uh, yeah. It's similar to the making of the classic American hero. Yeah, it's all yeah. there. Yeah, I think similar so. to Marlowe. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in Conrad. Yeah. Also similar to Philip Marlowe. And, uh, that was actually where my mind went. They both work. Marlowe. They both work because yeah. they're both classic American heroes. But but able to rhapsodize and philosophize and talk about kings yeah. and philosophers and Plato's 
actually have the quote here. Where is it? No, no, no. Here it is. Now had Tashtigo perished in that head, it had been a very precious perishing, smothered in the very whitest and daintiest of fragment spermaceti, coffined, hearsed, and tombed. This is Melville. He really is like, why say... Why say coffined, hearsed, or tombed when you can say all three? We have the three words. <laughs> Which usually we hate. I mean, I think it's just worth saying, like, any other book that we've read on the bookening that pulls that trick, we're like, ugh, choose one, idiot. Coffined, hearsed, and tombed in the secret inner chamber and sanctum santorum of the whole. Only one sweeter end can readily be recalled, the delicious death of an Ohio honey hunter who, seeking honey in the crotch of a hollow tree, found such exceeding store of it that, leaning too far over, it sucked him in so that he died embalmed. How many, think ye, have life likewise followed, fallen into Plato's honey head and sweetly perished there? It's great. It is just like... Partly why it's great is because Melville, uh, not every narrator that he has is this verbose. Mm-hmm. He can be f- kind of succinct if he wants to be. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason that everybody reads Bart- Bartleby in high yeah. school because it is short and succinct and kind of does the Hemingway. Thing. Yeah. So part of the success of this book is that Ishmael's voice is pretty consistent throughout. Mm-hmm. And from the beginning, he's just you're like, I like this, I like this guy, I like him telling yeah. me the story. Yeah. And it has a little bit of that seafarer energy. It yeah. is some kind of a guy kind of bounding a, around in front of the fire, telling yeah, you can good imagine stories. That he would be Cuff able to hold hurst. some Spanish sailors intrigued by his story years later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and he's just making his way in the world and figuring yeah. things out, and he's rubbing up anybody if if they had the slightest sort of poetic or philosophical bent would think those kinds of thoughts as they had to, were forced to rub up against these real cannibal pagans over here, and yeah, Israel. We are all of us pagans and Presbyterians alike. Mm-hmm. dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. Or right. Whatever. Yeah, that's a great line. That yeah. is a wonderful line. Uh, and or so it gives that sort of cosmopolitan... There's no greatness that is not you know, illness or whatever he On says. the one hand, grounded and world-weary, but on the other hand, sort of philosophical and observant and... The kind of guy that can see a painting or see whale sperm or something and suddenly have a flight of fancy that reaches to the ends of the earth and has all these illusions, but also can be completely cynical with his own life and (laughs) the lives of his comrades. And it is a uniquely American combination, I think. I don't know where you find a voice like this character in an earlier work. I prefer it to the occasional sentimentality of Dickens. Yeah. (laughs) Not a sentimental Frailty bone in this guy's body. <laughs> I mean, he's sentimental about whale blubber. I guess, but you never like, you never get like, this is the wrong note to be, you know what I mean? With Dickens, you get that all the time. This is just the wrong note right now, buddy. Yeah. All right. Can I read this quote about Ahab to, this is a, a long quote, but it's one of the best ones in the book. I, I uh, promise I won't read too many. I don't know if we both say no, does that mean you can't? You asked, can you? I meant, am I capable of reading? Like, I guess you're able. I don't know. Do you think that I have the mind and faculties such that I can judge then to what pitches of inflamed, distracted fury the minds of his more desperate hunters were impelled when amid the chips of chewed boats and the sinking limbs of torn comrades, they swam out of the white curds of the whale's direful wrath into the serene, exasperating sunlight that smiled on as if at birth or a bridal. 
his three boats stove around him, and oars and men both whirling in the eddies. One captain, seizing the lifeline from the broken prow, had dashed at the whale as an Arkansas duelist at his foe, blindly seeking with a six-inch blade to reach the fathom-deep life of the whale. That captain was Ahab, and then it was that suddenly, sweeping his sickle-shaped lower jaw beneath him, Moby Dick had reaped away Ahab's leg as a mower a blade of grass in the field. No turbaned Turk, no hired Venetian, no melee could have smote him with more, seemingly, with more seeming malice. Small reason was there to doubt then that ever since that almost fatal encounter, Ahab had cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale, all the more fell for that in his frantic morbidness he had come to identify with him not only all his bodily roles, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. That intangible malignity which has been from the beginning to whose dominion even the modern Christians ascribe one half of the world's which the ancient Ophites of the East reverenced in their statue devil. Ahab did not fall down and worship it like them, but deliriously transferring its idea to the abhorred white whale, he pitted himself all mutilated against it. All that most maddens and torments, all that stirs up the lees of things, all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt felt by I gotta get the sentence right. He piled upon the white mm, he piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by the whole race from Adam down, and then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his heart's, or no, his hot heart's shell upon it. This is hard to read. It's got a lot of alliteration. I think it's in, is he actually writing it in full iambic? Probably, Pentameter. Sure seems like it. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Ahab. We have to talk about Ahab. What are you guys' deep thoughts about Ahab? He may be... I don't know, maybe the scariest villain that I've ever read. What about, oh, I wish I could pull the guy from Ready Player One. What is that guy's name? What about Colonel Sadpants? Director Krennic? Yeah, Director Krennic. (laughs) (laughs) Colonel Sadpants. (laughs) Is that his name, Director Krennic? Krennic is, that actor plays Krennic in Rogue One. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forget. It's like, he probably is director or something in that. He's like a CEO or something. Uh, scariest that. villain. That's uh, in, in a series of books where we've, what other scary villains have? I mean, we've read Frankenstein, Jake, our boots were a quake in there. We've read Dracula. Dracula. We couldn't, couldn't sleep for weeks. We've read Something Wicked This Way Comes, and I'll tell you, Something Wicked This Way Came. Mm. And yet you say... Ahab is the scariest villain we've ever read. Prithee tell. I, I, I just, maybe some of this is recency bias, but I can't remember a character striking at the demonic in such a visceral way to the point where, I mean, Ahab, Ahab made me sick to my stomach. Well, what you said to me when we had our Starbuck conversation, should the crew depose Ahab, you said... This book actually made me understand why we have, why they execute people for blasphemy, why that's a thing, why the Bible yeah. talks like, like, oh, Ahab's actually a blasphemer and 
he deserves to die for it. He's yeah, he's, he's that dangerous and evil and demonic. Yeah. I sat there with that sense that Starbuck needs to kill this guy. And in trying to reconcile basic understanding of the law, what exactly did Ahab do that's wrong? And so is this me saying, I just don't like Ahab and I want the tension of Ahab gone and I'm willing for somebody to do the dirty deed mm-hmm. to, to end it in a pragmatic way? Or is there some kind of deeper principle at work here? And I sat there with that tension feeling like, actually everything in me says, Ahab really just Ahab really needs to die, and it's right. Mm-hmm. It is just right for Ahab to die. It is right for them to kill him, and I don't understand it. And then I started to, my mind turned to the to the blasphemy and heresy laws. Well, and I mean, it's as simple as you shall not suffer a witch to live. I mean, this person exactly has, right. He's a sorcerer in his quest allied himself with dark powers, and the book makes that very clear over and over and over again from the his chosen harpooners to the, the blood baptism of his weapon. Yep. All, all the pagan rituals, the all green of fire. His speeches. Yeah. The green fire was especially like, yeah, he's just like, he is, he's taking these men's lives in his own hands and he has sold his soul to the devil. And it felt the, everything about it felt deeply pagan and deeply blasphemous and deeply, grotesque in a way that just was visceral, made me sick to my stomach. And I can't quite, I can't, I can't conjure up another villain that get, that quite gets at that. Like maybe certain scenes in like in Shakespeare and like mm-hmm. Macbeth. Yeah. I'll tell, I'll tell you who, who we've read that where he goes for you the know, same thing, out, but it's, it's not as visceral as uh, Kurtz and Heart of Darkness yeah. is supposed to be this kind of thing. And he is. And it's well done enough, but it's not, it doesn't conjure up this kind of horror. Well, part of the reason is because he also has these remnants of his humanity. That's what I was right. thinking. They keep yeah. surfacing. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I really think I keep coming back to it, but the part, the moment that really moves me with Ahab is a simple one where he says, my pipe no longer soothes me. I, there's nothing that gives me pleasure anymore. And he tosses it into the sea and Melville has a whole, you know, the pipe hissed as it sank down into the abyss of blah, blah, blah. But there is just this kind of malaise and clinical depression for lack of a, but there, there is, there are things that are very relatable about Ahab, you know, apart from his existential need to kill God or whatever it is he's trying to do. There, there's just this like, oh, this guy has nothing left. He's really mm-hmm. sad. He derives no pleasure. I mean, I, I find that really scary, actually, the idea of, I mean, if you've ever actually had anything that you that you think could be called clinical depression, you know exactly what he's talking about with the pipe. Like, you can't watch a movie. You can't listen to a podcast. You can't listen to music. Nothing gives you any pleasure. You just feel disconnected and hovering over annihilation. And so I think Ahab has these things that are very human and that makes him much queasier and sicker than like Dracula's demonic, but Dracula is other. You're never invited to have any sympathy for Dracula, but precisely because you know where Ahab's coming from and you get these moments of real pathos with him. I think it, it draws you in just enough. It keeps you outside enough to allow him to be larger than life and all this, but it draws you in just enough that you really... You understand him, and you, yeah, don't, think, you don't like the feeling of understanding him. I think there's a reason that people always draw parallels between him and 
Milton's Milton's Satan. Yeah. Satan, yeah. Yeah. He is that. Yeah, he's a, a potentially great man who sold his soul because of ambition mm-hmm. and allowed himself to be driven mad. And there, I think there are plenty of signs in the book that he knows that he's done this. Like he's culpable because he realized he's not just like an insane man. Mm-hmm. He's given himself over and, and he knows so it. therefore he's been given over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. He's and angry he at it, yeah. God and he wants to strike a blow, an existential yeah. blow, and he's willing to make a pact with the devil to do it. Yeah. I, th- I think he also maybe is a little queasier because he kind of sneaks up on you. And, and maybe that's partially the fault of the idea of Ahab that at least I come, you know, you kind of think of him as like uh, Captain Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean or something. You have such an idea of that kind of a character. And it's such a cliche of that kind of a character in your mind that when it actually hits with real power, it your my shields weren't up for it like they might be with a character. You kind of think you know Ahab's bag of tricks before you even see him. You don't have to have ever read the book to n- not have in your mind a pretty good idea of who this guy is and yeah. what he's going to do. Yep. But I, I guess we should. I, I should ask the obvious question. Why does Ahab want to kill this whale? What's what's this meant to represent, guys? The whale ate his leg off. Yeah, he's just mad. <laughs> Give me back my leg. Okay. Let's see if you can get it back. All right, good. <laughs> just, just checking. <laughs> Nailed uh, it. Nailed it. Wonder you then at the fiery hunt. Oh, man. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by the whole race from Adam down, and then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his heart. Hot hearts shall upon it. I love that sentence. Well, that's the reason right there. You just read it. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like, my grandma died of cancer. What's something I can kill to feel better about it? Hey, there's a whale. I mean, yeah. uh, Leviathan, Moby Dick, represents God. Mm -hmm. Represents the... The unknowable will of God. Yeah, the untamable, primal force of nature, the supernatural, transcendent, being that you cannot tame or can control, and he he's gonna he's gonna go kill God. Mm-hmm. He's just an angry, angry man. Which is why I think a modern a lot of modern takes on this admire Ahab. I mean, he he's, he is kind of to a lot of people not to a lot of people wrongly. He is a not an antihero, but an actual hero. Someone who's striving to find some existential meaning in the midst of the horror. The horror. Yeah. Yep. And uh, of course it's going to swallow him like it swallows us all, but, but at least he tries. At least he tried, even if he had to make a pact with some Arabs to do it. Yeah. Those Arabs. <laughs> Brandon, don't be racist. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. <laughs> I like the little seagull before. It's the phrase and then the seagull. And, and then the chomp of the apple. The chomp of the apple. I don't know. You guys want to say anything else about Ahab? Before, I mean, maybe we'll, there'll be other things as we talk through the rest of this novel. I mean, he's a type. He's a Steve Jobs type or, a, you know. Oh, a, yeah. Lots, lots of modern critics compare him to, like, CEOs. Yeah, yeah. One of, the, one of those great captains. Elon Musk, I who suppose. Who doesn't care is, about his yeah. people. Yeah, he's just. Just driven to get the thing done. Driven to get the thing done. I mean, I'm sure that is one of the reasons it resonates. And he's marked by that lightning scar or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just. Like Harry Potter. Yeah. Is this book the 19th century Harry Potter? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Moby Dick is Voldemort. Yeah, sure. Is Moby Dick Voldemort? 
Well, all right, let's assign it real quick. Uh, who is Ishmael? Who would Ishmael be? Ron? No, Ron's too lame. I guess he's just J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Ishmael's J.K. Rowling. Who's Starbuck? Hermione. Hermione, <laughs> yeah. Stubb is, maybe, I guess Stubb could be Ron, but that's giving Ron a lot of dignity and agency. It's a great exercise. I'm I'm so happy that we're Pip doing is Dobby. it. Dobby. <laughs> Who's Dobby? Pip. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Queequeg is... Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Okay. Well, guys, I'm glad we did this. I was going to say Hagrid. (laughs) This was the pinnacle of all podcasting. I think I'm glad I brought us down this avenue. Hey, speaking of... Diagon (laughs) Avenue. Hey, yeah. Speaking of avenues, we're entering the crawlway of secondary characters. Oh, man. It's my favorite Get me out of here. I feel claustrophobic. Oh, I feel right at home. Yeah. (laughs) Let's solve some puzzles, guys, before we die. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what people are thinking at this point in the podcast so Queequeg how'd you guys like old Queequeg he was great was he move on <laughs> uh, I mean it's interesting to f- have such a modern conceit of the pagan guy like it f- just feels like how they how you'd write him now the noble yeah. the noble savage cliche the- but the noble savage cliche goes all the way back before then it does but like robinson caruso which i guess is a couple hundred years before this like he's gonna tame the noble savage and christianize him but melville goes out of his way to say actually christian you know what's the line about i'll try a pagan friend since christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy he worships queequeg's idol he has that extended uh, thing about how yeah Ishmael talking himself into, well, you know, God wants us to be friends with people and to reach out to them. It's kind of like the the, the gospel coalition, like, here's why you should worship your friend's idol. <laughs> Three reasons to worship well, your, your, your friend's pagan idol friend's idol. is actually I- worshiping Jesus. Right, exactly. I, yeah, I don't know if I have any other deep thoughts. Naaman the leper in Dayon. Yeah, he's a good guy, that Queequeg. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yep. He's going to dive in the water and save somebody and prove that he's not just some cannibal. I think that Melville had the profound realization, probably from having met other actual people, that we're people. People are people, Mm -hmm. even if they're pagan people. No matter how small. I was away from my microphone spinning in my chair. I couldn't get that in quick enough. Beat me to it. Yeah, well. (laughs) I like the sentence, Queequeg was George Washington, cannibalistically developed. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I don't remember what that sentence means, but I like all those know, words being in one sentence. Like growing up with homeschool families and kind of in the closed off Reformed Baptist world, people get the thought that if you go off to Mexico or you go off to New Guinea, that you, like the barbarian, to be a barbarian is to be something that's not human mm-hmm. <laughs> and forget that. There's yeah. still people in barbarian scenarios. So if you go there, you're probably going to find them doing things that are pretty similar to what you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they're still people and they still have to make their way through like 24 hours a day and mm-hmm. do things that you have to do, like breathe and eat and all the other things. Right. And I think that's the profound realization that Melville is giving us here that, you know, who we imagine someone to be versus what their humanity actually makes them into is very different. Yeah. That's why you listen to this podcast, folks. You've learned that when people are born at the same time, they're contemporaries, <laughs> yeah. and that everyone needs to breathe. <laughs> everyone needs to breathe. Despite what you may have thought. Yeah. <laughs> what well, is, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. I'm sorry, I'm being mean to Brandon. I'll cricket myself. 
Thank you, Nathan. I'll say something mean about Brandon, and then I'll cricket it to show how little respect. Uh, Brandon's a jerk. Nobody agreed with me. I'm just thinking of like the so some of the missionaries who come back from Papua New Guinea, and, the, and they I guess they might want to make it as interesting as they possibly can. And so it's like you get a cartoon character yeah. of what a Papua New Guinea person is like. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And then you actually go those. over there and you meet someone, or you meet someone from there, and it's just like, oh well. It's kind of like what you do. We just sit around most of our day trying to figure out what to do with ourselves. And, you know, we're people. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes that makes complete sense. Yeah. They're sinners like we are in need of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, we're all cracked and broken about the head, Presbyterian and pagan alike. And, yeah, and des- needing a mending. Desperately need mending. What's this? We're being ushered into the villain's lair. Didn't we already go through there? Are we already done? Is that is he the only secondary character? Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> Crawlway of secondary characters. We're still there. Uh, I mean, what do you guys think about old Starbuck? We'd already talked about him. He's got a great line of coffee shops. Yeah. Stub. He's got that pipe. He's got that pipe. Yeah. Oh, yep. the paragraph about his pipe is great. I don't have that one. I'm sorry, folks. I know you like mm, listening. You failed. To 90 yeah. pages and you didn't have that one. I mean, I did have it in the 90 pages. I didn't actually bring the 90 pages today. I uh, Did you I, handwrite these 90 pages? Yeah, with my blood <laughs> and the blood of pagans. <laughs> you baptized those pages. <laughs> no. no, I just use pagan blood. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just the thing I do. As one does. As one does. I mean, I guess what? The, the different characters are all different reactions that we have to the existential dilemma yeah, let's of go to man. the lair. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. <laughs> there. <laughs> That's for me. <laughs> I mean, you got Stubb. He laughs at everything. You got Starbuck. And he's like, what is Starbuck? I'm a good Christian. and But doesn't know how to act in the face of evil. I just want to do my job. But, oh, yeah. I don't know what to do. You got Flask, who just wants to make some money and doesn't know what the big fuss is about. Mm-hmm. You got Queequeg, who just wants to be brave. I don't know. He wants to... What does he want? Go on in his next whaling you got voyage. John Henry, whatever his name is. John. The giant. Queequeg wants to find his way in the world before he goes back and becomes king of his people. Right. That's right. That's why he's George Washington, cannibalistically developed. So you got you got Queequeg, you got Testigo, then you got the other one, John Henry, the, the giant... Didn't John Henry build the railroads yeah, or something? Yeah, but I mean, the the massive. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's lots of there's there's John Coffee. John Coffee. John yeah. Coffee. But what's his name? Not it's, like the drink. Yeah. Ooh. No. Yeah. No. Ah. Uh, or like uh, the drink, but spelled different. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. He's the big black guy. <laughs> yeah, he's the big black guy. John Coffee. Yeah, John. Yeah. Coffee. The drink, but, but there's one different. on the boat. Yeah. There's a couple of black Stub guys. Stub gets on. up on his shoulders, and it's yeah. I remember yeah. that guy. Yeah. Forget his name. Oh, look at this. We're going into the villain's lair. I guess, is the villain Moby Dick? Does anyone want to argue? I guess, is Ahab, Ahab the villain? Ahab. Ahab is the villain. So do you think Moby Dick is not the villain? Yes, I think Moby Dick is not the villain. I think Moby Dick is... Moby Dick's just a force of nature? Yeah, he's Ahab's... Re- Retribution and everybody else gets caught in the wake. He is Ahab's villain, but because Ahab is the true villain, <laughs> that adds up to a neg- Sorry, is I actually meant to hit the crickets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, no, it's, no, 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 it's, no, it's interesting. No, it's, no, it's not. No, it's, no, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's I, I really want to. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. 
Please go on. Uh, no. I, haven't, I actually don't know what I was saying. <laughs> Moby Dick is Ahab'sville. Yeah, Moby Dick doesn't care for Ahab. I, uh, that's one of the things and I so picked up on. So a villain of my, my villain is my friend? Yeah. I think that's what I was going for. Moby Dick is our best friend. I think yeah. that's what we're supposed to get from. He's going to be our guest next week. <laughs> Moby Dick's going to oh, be our guest. <laughs> Brandon is fat. Hey, Moby Dick. <laughs> From the heart of hell, I strike at thee. <laughs> Brandon is fat. Oh, man. I've been baptizing my harpoon in blood for a while now, so. Okay. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for you. <laughs> uh, did you guys uh, Did you guys have to struggle through some of the whale chapters and stuff, or did you? Did, was oh, it, was, for sure. Were there parts where this book was work, or was it all yeah. pretty? Yeah, no. I think as we got closer to having to record and into the second half of the book, it, there were parts that got got to be worked. The early chapters, the first half, I didn't have any trouble with. I just enjoyed it. And we probably should let people know that we love this book, but you can really only read a page a day. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, that's a kind of true. That's kind of true. Yeah. I, yeah. I really wasn't reading more than a couple pages a day. Yeah. Luckily, the chapters are short. Right, you that really read, does go. It was way. just like read one chapter. So, uh, a day. 130 chapters. You really need about a third of a year to finish this book. Yeah. We know some. We know a certain person that reads this every November. Do we? Yeah, Anna Borka. Her family loves this book. <laughs> oh, apparently there's a Moby Dick opera. Oh, that's something. So shout out to our friend. Shout out to our friend. I think she's very glad to know that we love this book. Uh, yeah, no. Well, I thought maybe there'd be more to say about Moby Dick, but you know, I mean, he's well. I think that we've he's like an agent of chaos. Well, and what we're finding out with this conversation, Nathan, is that we front ended the front ended a lot of our take. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what else we. Oh, Brandon, I really have to say there's more to say. Okay. We've got several more segments of this podcast, <laughs> and they're going to be great. Okay, I mean Ishmael didn't run out of things to say, did he? No, he didn't, Nathan. Wait, where's my? Okay, sorry, folks. It's Tokyo Drift. <laughs> <laughs> The Speeding Roadster, folks, is bringing us into the world of twists and turns, mm-hmm. where we talk about the plot. This oh, yeah. book has a really complicated plot. You go into the Atlantic, you don't find the well. So you go to the Pacific, you don't find the well. You run into some friends. <laughs> some of them are having parties because they're just like dripping with oil. Some of them are sad because they lost all their children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eventually, the whale finds you, man. Yeah. You <laughs> and you find like, the whale, Wait, man. <laughs> am I hunting the whale? Or is, is the, the whale, whale hunting, hunting me? me? <laughs> Brandon is found. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the plot right there. Lots uh, of twists and turns. <laughs> lots of twists and turns. And uh, as twisty and turny as it gets, as you don't completely know what Ishmael is going to decide to turn into a metaphor next. <laughs> no, that's about I the mean, big twist. They pretty much tell you, he pretty much tells you the plot the minute we get our little Burnham Wood Dunsinane prophecy. Mm-hmm. We oh, all yeah. know how it's going to end at that point. And he kind of just says, and poor Queequeg is going to die. Yeah. And Starbucks going to die. <laughs> Everybody's, everybody is going to die. And the weird guy at the beginning who shows up briefly on the... Oh, the prophet guy? Then, no, the like Brunswick or whatever his name is. Yeah, the, the he gets guy a whole on chapter. Yeah, like he's like directing them, piloting the ship out of the harbor, and then he never shows up again. <laughs> he gets a chapter. The guy that like remember this guy? What's his name? I don't remember. Brunswick or Bur- he, Bur- Bur- I, Burkington. He joins the metal. There's right? the metal worker who gets a couple chapters where Ahab's like, "Hey, metal worker." Yeah, the, there's the prophet walking the street that 
they were yeah elijah or whatever his name yeah. was right yeah. yeah and so he sh- and he's the one who sees the four figures going on to the boat and scares them all yeah right is this the right re- he's like oh but hey never mind maybe i didn't see anything and then disappears into the fog mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i guess the only real twist and turn question is is it the right ending i mean would you you can't rewrite moby dick but would you would you have it any other way? Would you have the whale die with Ahab? Would you have some of the crew no, survive? I think, I think the this, whale needs this, to survive. The whale needs to survive because yeah. chaos doesn't end. Nature doesn't yeah. end. God doesn't end. You can't go out and and seek to kill God and succeed. Mm-hmm. You can you can't shake your fist at the universe. The universe wins, and the universe kills all your friends. You can't. You really do need everybody to. I die. think it's the right ending. Like, yeah. I think so, Whether or not yeah. it's, it feels, it's weird since it's a book full of like meandering thoughts and stuff. It feels a little anticlimactic to it just does. then have three chapters at the end that are plot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're but good chapters as far they as They are. It just feels like, you feel like, you suddenly feel like you're reading like what everybody thought Melville was going to write in the first place. Yeah. It just happens way too late to actually people be are getting, really late and really fast. Day one, getting, day two, day three. Yeah. yeah. And I alone chopped up have by, survived to tell thee. Yep. Yeah, they're getting killed by harpoons. They're getting wrapped in ropes. Mm-hmm. They're like, you're like, man, suddenly this has become like the Avengers. <laughs> but everybody's <laughs> well, dying. Yeah. It's pretty, well, I don't know. He's pretty good at it. He realized that he's, when, yeah. he, when he has to put his mind to it, he can actually write the adventure stuff. You realize what got his name made for him in the first Well, place. he has these little details like the bird that gets sucked down with the ship. That's awesome. Yeah. The bird that just flutters by and then zoop, just yeah. goes down. I mean that's that's good. That's some good writing right there. Yeah, some good writing. And and I mean, I, I, Ab's final soliloquy is justifiable. Abs. Abs. Yeah. Abs. Is that his name? Now? Abs. Did I say abs? He's famous for his abs. Yeah. Abs. His, abs. His great abs. His his final from hell's heart I stab at thee and all that stuff. I mean that's that's great. Yeah. There's a reason everybody remembers that and probably misattribute mis mis yeah attributes it to, to Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah, and or the King James Bible. I bet it's been attributed to both. Where are we? Are we still in Villain's Lair? No, we're in no. Twists and Turns. Yeah. Twists and Turns, the meanderings oh, of Ishmael's man. mind. Can, can you believe that the prophecy, the way that that played out? Can, can you believe a whole book about inevitability believe. ended on an inevitable note? The most twists and turns is the fact that he's able to turn like just days out in the ocean into a really fascinating... 500 page book. Yeah. I mean, it does prove the old adage. There's no such thing as uninteresting subjects. There's only uninteresting people. Yeah. And he's it, an interesting person. Ishmael is fascinated by whale blubber and whale sperm and whale anatomy and all kinds of things. And whale oil, whale yeah. oil. He makes it interesting. He makes it interesting. Yeah. Well, guys, we're coming into the salon of style. Listen to that. <laughs> It's like a French hey, salon guys. or something. They French salon. French cigarette here. Uh, what did you guys think about the style? This grand eloquent prose meeting right. the grand element eloquent theme. What it is. Yeah, not I mean, to go ahead. He aims for Shakespeare and he succeeds and the whole the whole novel stands or falls on whether or not he can attain that sort of Shakespearean height poetically and metaphorically and otherwise, and he just does and he maintains it. Mm-hmm. It's a white whale in and of itself. You would you would destroy yourself trying. 
it is not advisable to try to do what he did here. No, he kind of did destroy himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of anyone else who's done this in the 19th century or the 20th century who's said, succeeded. Yeah. Like on this scale, I'm I mean, just going to do Shakespeare. Like I'm just going to write a Shakespearean soliloquy. I mean, yeah. Who, who's even tried a, and then who succeeded? Well, we know people who have tried and we just sort of smile and pat them on the head and, and that's when they succeed. It, but they, we never think they succeed in attaining Shakespeare. We think they succeed in, in, in giving us writing some... Writing a good cheesy, today is our Independence Day. Yeah, it'll be Ray Bradbury. It'll be John Steinbeck. It'll mm. be somebody like that who is... It's passable. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're aiming for... The thighs of women have lost their... Well, right. not, I about that. Yeah, no, that gets an F. <laughs> that doesn't pass. No, this because there's so much of it that does get a, a big fat F. You know, yeah. like, it's like what a joke. We sit and we laugh about it, and yet we admire them for aspiring. Yeah, you know, we admire them for. I mean, actually, though, with still somebody like Steinbeck, it's like, yeah, I wish you hadn't aspired. Like, I like what you sure. I, you just succeeded in spite of yourself, but it would have been better if you just kept your prose simple. Probably, I don't need it. Right. I don't need no thighs of women losing their clutch. Yeah, and with British writers, you realize the reason they never tried is because they realize they can't be Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to do their own thing. But I think what Melville had was the rare opportunity to be America's Shakespeare. Oh, I just thought of somebody who did pull it off, who has pulled it off. Who? Cormac McCarthy. Oh. I mean, he can. He is capable of rising to that level of rhetorical... I wouldn't say he does it as successfully, as consistently as Melville. Even McCarthy can be a little hit or miss sometimes, but he is the one person I can think of in the 20th century and 21st century who strives for that kind of, what do you want to grand call eloquence. it? Grand eloquence. Yeah, grand eloquent poetry and gets there. Although even McCarthy in his later stuff has really stripped things down. I mean, No Country for Old Men and The Road don't really. It's And The Road's the only one that I've finished. Yeah, I mean... I mean, we started Blood Meridian, but I quit. Yep. 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 But he can do that. He is capable. Yep. I don't know what else you guys want to say about the style. We said we loved Ishmael's voice. If people want representative chapters, I'd say the whiteness of the whale. Eh, That might defeat somebody without context. The masthead is actually my favorite chapter in the book. I think it's probably mine too. Yeah. Here, I'll read a little quote. There you stand. I'm just trying to hook somebody. If people listen to this without, they haven't read the book sometimes, which is fine, but I I want them to read the book. So there you stand a hundred feet above the silent decks, striding along the deep as if the masts were gigantic stilts, while beneath you and between your legs, as it were, swim the hugest monsters of the sea, even as as ships once sailed between the boots of the famous Colossus at Old Roads. There you stand, lost in the infinite series of the sea, with nothing ruffled but the waves. The tranced ship indolently rolls, the drowsy trade wind blows, everything resolves you into languor. For the most part, in this tropic wailing life, a sublime uneventfulness invests you. You hear no news, read no gazettes, extras with startling accounts of commonplaces, Never delude you into unnecessary excitements. You hear of no domestic afflictions, bankrupt securities, fall of stocks, or never troubled with the thought of what you shall have for dinner for all your meals for three years and more. Snug, snugly stowed in casks, and your bill of fare is immutable. 
mutable. There is no life in thee now except that rocking life imparted by a gentle rolling sea, by her borrowed from the sea, by the sea from the inscrutable tides of God. But while this sleep, this dream is on ye, move your foot or hand an inch, slip your hold at all, and your identity comes back in horror. Over Descartian vortices you hover, and perhaps at midday in the fairest weather, with one half-throttled shriek, you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea, no more to rise forever. Heed it well, ye pantheists. I like that. Heed it well, ye pantheists. <laughs> I guess there are parts where I'm, I laugh at this book, especially when he goes into these and thous and, mm-hmm. and yees, but I, I, uh, maybe I'm, I don't know whether I'm laughing at it or am I laughing at it or laughing with it. I think you're laughing with it. I mean, he intends it to be a little over the top grand, yeah. especially with, I think, I think part of those like heat it. Well, you pantheists, I get the sense that it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, Ishmael certainly has a sense of humor about all of this. Oh man. Okay. Well guys, that brings us into, I think we've probably already covered most of this, but we are entering now into the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning. Uh, my first question for this section is why does Ishmael go out of his way? Why does Melville go out of his way to say this book is not an allegory when it is in fact one of the more straight, strict allegories that I think we've ever read on the on the show. But he's got some section, I don't think I have the quote, where he's like, allegories are dumb. And this isn't an allegory. Beware of looking for allegories in whales. Now let me allegorize for the next 9,000 pages. Because whales are real. That's why. Because Leviathan is real. And you can't... I think what he wants you to realize or what he wants you to come up against is not that we're trying to find a deeper meaning beyond the monster, but that the monster is mythical majesty that is in fact real. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. And you can try to describe it any way you want to. And it'll sound like Shakespearean poetry and allegory and myth making. And at the end of the day, if you get in a boat and you go out, you will meet the monster mm-hmm. and he will be everything and more that was described. And I, I don't know. I think it's just a way to try to make it all feel grounded and potent and strong and it's a really make it hit home. Yeah. The sentence that made me think of feel the most like that, or one of them was something about for two thirds of the earth, Noah's flood has not yet subsided. He just has this thing. Oh, that's yeah. That's a fantastic image. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Just like all these ancient things that we feel so out of touch with all these primordial powers that we think went away long ago or are in fact just, Still in play. Still all around us. We just, we're just familiar with it. And we've, like you said, Jake, we've categorized it. We've given it a name, which thinks we have, makes us think we have power over it. Mm-hmm. We don't. And this book does a good job of, what's the academic phrase? Defamiliarization? Is that yeah, the thing? Defamiliarization. Yeah. Russian defamiliarization. This, this book does a good job of Russian defamiliarization. Yeah, thanks. Um, that's for me. That's for me. Uh, all right, we're, we're in the haven of reflection on deeper meaning. So uh, any any other deep thoughts that this book triggered? Can you just keep this music playing throughout while we 
talk about the. I'm just gonna go to sleep. For yeah. Moby Dick, for me, what Moby Dick really meant was that as much as I try to understand the world, the world will continually be beyond It'll my never understanding. Understand me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. I am the whiteness of the whale. <laughs> Did we read Moby Dick, or did Moby Dick read us? And the whale is with me. I am one with the whale. The whale is with me. In this experiment we call America, we are always striving after our whales. We're all chasing our own white whale. And are we not in some... Imagine you're on a ship at sea, gently rocking. Rocking. Gently rocking. You're on the masthead, towering above the earth. Are we not all Ishmael <laughs> and Ahab? What's your white whale? Maybe your white whale is that job promotion. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> if you have a white whale, <laughs> if you have a white whale, you can't get rid of. Call me at eight one two two seven two. Oh man, <laughs> that's great. If you just have enough faith. <laughs> <laughs> Call 1 800 and we'll remove your white whale. We'll be right there. <laughs> for your gift of. <laughs> <laughs> for your gift of. <laughs> uh, $100 or more, we'll send yeah. you this whale blubber pendant that will help you kill your white whale. Kill your white whale? We'll send, we'll send you a harpoon baptized in the blood of pagans. <laughs> Straight out of the heart of Israel. Straight out of the heart of Israel. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right. Well, <clears throat> uh, I guess we should wrap up. I just want to read. So, re- so you started with uh, you started with dogs for some reason, and that was I don't know why you did, but Ahab and Jezebel were consumed by the dogs in the streets, and that is what happens to our Ahab ultimately. So yeah. See, the dogs are prosaic, and our Ahab gets a a glorious yeah I have it's a better death than Jezebel but yeah but this is a fiction work as opposed to history and it needs a little bit of that extra you can't if they have just tripped and fell into the ocean and got eaten by piranhas <laughs> it just wouldn't have the same same kick I don't think <laughs> he's sleeping with the fishes he's sleeping with the fishes <laughs> that would have been funny he falls in but been gets awesome. eaten by the sh- sharks instead yeah. of the whale Oh man! Oh oh! I just want to talk about two things real quick. I think the old man in the sea should have shown up. The old man, yeah, I'm coming for you. <laughs> what if he killed Moby Dick? Yeah, right after, right after Ahab. That section where they find themselves—it's—it happens near the middle of the book. It's really well placed where they find themselves in this weird heavenly. There's like flowers all around, at least the way I remember it. And there's like what you call it, whale calves and stuff that are coming up and yeah. petting them. It's such a weird. Like, I don't know what it's even doing in the book exactly, but I mean, I guess it's just another side of the prism of our view of whales, but that that's a beautiful little section. And, and then in terms of... Oh, where he's seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's otherworldly scene. He's yeah. Like, he's saying... The little piece of heaven or something. As well like as that. he says that, yeah, even in the way it circles down reminds me of like some of the paintings of the like Renaissance, how you have the circles yeah. that lead up into heaven. Right. But... He doesn't he say there that you're getting a, they were it's like they were viewing something that was otherworldly. Yeah, well in the in the, the in secrets the, of the world or something like in that. the book it almost feels like the eye of the hurricane. Maybe he even uses that metaphor. It's like everything on either side of the book is chaos and horror and 
abyss and everything. But in the middle here, we have this perfectly calm, beautiful little maternal mm-hmm. whale calf section. They're all they're like connected to their mothers by yeah. these tubes and stuff. And adds depth to the whale. Yeah. Because up to that point, well, the whole stub, well, with a stubby fin, mm-hmm. that whole scene was sad too. Where they kill where they the, the, the first hunting. kill? No, the second kill. Yeah. Where the, they have it with the French people. Yeah, that's right. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I just want to read this one short paragraph, which is one of the most horrific paragraphs I think I've ever read. In three minutes, a whole mile of shoreless ocean was between Pip and Stub. Out from the center of the sea, poor Pip turned his crisp, curling black head to the sun, another lonely castaway, through the loftiest and the brightest. Now in calm weather, to swim in the open ocean is as easy to the practice swimmer as to ride in a spring carriage ashore, but the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity, my God, who can tell it? Mark how when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea, Mark how closely they hug their ship and only coast along her sides. I don't think I've ever, I mean, that is just one of those images that totally puts you in touch with what a primal, scary world we live in. I mean, I know there's movies and stuff about people who are trapped in the middle of the ocean with just... Or adrift in space. Yeah, but that really puts you in touch with that kind of like, you're just surrounded by... Nothing. Nothing feeling the idea that no one knows and no one's coming to save you and it's like you know i probably lord willing i will never be in space but the idea that there's something on this globe where i could actually find myself hovering over the abyss like that it's it's scary some nightmare fuel right there and the fact that it breaks pip's brain for the rest of the book makes complete sense it's not Mm -hmm. any kind of an ask it's just like imagine and then the kind of casual way he falls off the boat and ever the one boat thinks the other boat's going to pick him up and everything. It's just like the kind of thing that could happen. It's just like really scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Brandon, how many ghosts with a clean conscience? That was my, one of my favorite co- quotes too. Do you yeah. have that one? Let me see. I definitely had it in my pa- in my 90 pages, but do I have it in my shorter version? Oh, no, I don't think so, but it's worth looking up. All mortal greatness is but disease. That was one of my favorite quotes. (laughs) All mortal greatness is but disease. That's a nice Ecclesiastes (laughs) quote. I looked around me tranquilly and contentedly like a quiet ghost with a clean conscience sitting inside the bars of a snug family vault. Yep. And then it keeps going. Yeah, it does. But this quote that I pulled up doesn't, sadly. Can you keep going, Jake? No. Wait, maybe I think I can in a second. Oh, mortal greatness is butt disease. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. And then he says, now then, thought I, unconsciously rolling up the sleeves of my frock, here goes for a cool collected dive at death and destruction, and the devil fetched the hindmost. Yeah. That's yeah. old Ishmael. The devil will take the hindmost. I mean, this book really is one of the books that has the most great quotes and memorable images per pound of almost anything short of Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, it is, is there anything that even comes close? No. In the bookings? Mm-mm. No, Tolstoy's not this quotable. No, I mean, Tolstoy's great, but he'll spend one chapter developing one meta, you know, Sophia was a kitten, it was a yeah. whole chapter, but Melville's just like, here's some gold. And all when he was 32. Yeah. He wrote it between the age of 28 and 32. That's amazing. 10 years younger than we are. 
I'm horror-struck at this anti-mosaic, unsourced existence of the unspeakable terrors of the whale, which having been before all time, must needs exist after all humane ages are over. Mm. Could you have written this at 32? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I just sat down and... You are Melville? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I had to copy it, but I, I wrote it. Brandon, how many pounds of whale blubber do you give Moby Dick? Out of... Eh, just how many? Uh, uh, 10. 10? Ooh. Is that not a lot? Yet a possible 100, so that's uh, not very yeah, good. Well, 10. Uh, I mean, it could do better. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a pretty crappy book, really. <laughs> Jake, how many pounds of whale blubber do you give Moby Dick? Out of 100? Out of 100, yes. Well, I give it 101 tons. That's absurd. <laughs> 101 twins, and I have pounds, so that's wow, a lot. That's, that's a huge percentage. That's a huge percentage. That's like in the thousands. Somebody's trying to be Melville's pet. Fine. I give it infinity bigger than whatever you say. <laughs> Ooh. I give it infinity bigger than whatever you say to the infinity power. Oh, I'm going to do that times the galaxies <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> i already said bigger than whatever you say so whatever you say it's bigger than listen guys what are the other great american novels that we, we could put in the running just for fun real quick you got huckleberry finn to kill a mockingbird, kill a mockingbird uh, ready player one invisible, I think man. Brandon, invisible man invisible man anything else that wants to go in there i don't think so Mm-mm. i think those are the ones mm-hmm. some people put infinite jest in there yeah as an infinite jest i yeah, think some people can float in the infinite ocean and mm-hmm. sink like a stone mm-hmm. you better start swimming or you sink like yeah, a stone exactly times they're changing papa was a rolling stone yeah he was so how do how do we compare this you got ready player one uh-huh. you got mark twain uh-huh. or n- not mark twain huckleberry finn uh-huh. you got to kill a mockingbird. To kill a mockingbird and you got moby dick gatsby oh yeah uncle yeah. tom's cabin uh, nope not even last of the mohicans mm-hmm. not these are the sort of, of like to those conversation things that end up on i don't think i would throw any of those three in gatsby maybe gatsby but yeah but gatsby's just not it's like the great 20th american yeah i'd give it to something by hemingway before i gave it to gatsby as far as all that that. scarlet letter sure Mm, nope yeah i mean i think to me men prefer blondes absalom absalom the grapes of wrath catcher in the rye (sighs) lolita boo boo Mm. boo Nabokov was American? Blood Meridian. Technically. Blood Meridian, Beloved. Beloved makes the list. Blood Meridian, Beloved. Telegraph <laughs> Avenue. I don't know that I know that one. Polygraph Avenue? Michael Cabon. Oh. Oh. Well, okay. So the only ones that I would say are actually in the running from that list are Huckleberry Finn, Moby Dick, and To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. And if you want to argue for To Kill a Mockingbird or Huckleberry Finn, they're both they both actually capture more of the American experience. Not, I mean, Brendan made a compelling argument that Moby Dick captures it metaphorically, but in terms of actual lived American experience, uh, it's pretty alien. Yeah, it's like I don't relate to anything in Moby Dick. I love it because of its. You have an American novel. the The argument against Moby Dick is you have an American novel that doesn't take place in America, right? And doesn't feel like it takes place with Americans. And whose hero is a complete cosmopolitan and... Yeah, and even their names are not American names. Ishmael, Ahab, and then you've got Queequeg. Mm -hmm. And what the most American person that you get is, or feeling person that you get, I guess you, I mean, Ahab is an Ishmael art, but what, Starbuck? Right. It's like, they feel like pirates. They don't feel like... Americans. Americans. They feel like sailors. They feel like... 
you keep wanting to reset to some kind of to Britain or something like that instead of the Antiket. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, so that's the argument against That's it. the argument against it. Oh, you convinced me this is a piece of trash. He's right. It's garbage. Sure, <laughs> oh, garbage. No. I just. I mean, what I would say. A, the argument against it is that it's categorically different. What you need is something that the average American not only that not only embodies the spirit of what it means to be an American, but every embodies the experience. Yeah, that it also embodies the experience that every everyone can read and feel like they deeply relate to it and connect with it and say, "This is my land. These are my people." And this is not that novel. This is not. This isn't that. It's many other things, but it's not that. To Kill a Mockingbird, Huck Finn, both do much more in the way of being American. Yeah. I don't in, think that... In, in capturing the American experience. Let's see if you guys will follow me here. I don't think that... To Kill a Mockingbird is obviously the most likable in many ways of the three, but I don't think... I, I think it lacks that crucial quality of ambition. It doesn't exemplify... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an ambitious book. It's a good book. It's It pulls off some really magical, wonderful things, but it, it's actually not crazy and flawed like the other two are, and, and therefore I kind of take it out of the running. Like I, I actually think it's just not aiming as it's high. It's a little too perfect and a little too pat, and right. a little too right. neat. The great American novel should be trying to shove a harpoon into its greatness and should flail a little bit and maybe even go down with the ship. Maybe we should read The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, I don't really think The Grapes of Wrath belongs in the discussion, but I'd put Eden before that. But yes, we probably should next year. Well, sometimes it's just that I... If I read it, it was in high school, and it is what comes up in these lists above East of Eden. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I it's agree. The other Steinbeck, you know, we've we've done, we've mice, done and men. mice and men, and we've done. It's time for grapes of wrath. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. So, but anyway, I I actually narrow it down to Moby Dick or Huck Finn, and then I say Huck Finn has garbage last third. Just, it's the last chapter or whatever. Yeah, well, it's a couple it's chapters. The it's the closing act. Yeah, because they get to Tom's stupid farm or whatever it is, and then there's all these shenanigans, and it just really deflates. I, I would say if Huck Finn But landed, you just said the same thing about the last three chapters of Moby Dick, more or less. We did collectively, but the last three chapters of Moby Dick are inevitable, and they do their job. And Yeah, that's right. I mean, they you wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, yeah. what do you yeah. want to, the, the only option I was trying is, to make a counterpoint. No, I think it's a, it's a fair counterpoint, but. But it doesn't, I mean, when, when you go back to the final, I mean, Tw Twain just really trying to pick a not colorful metaphor here. He really has everything that you could want. And then he just. I mean, I wonder if I he can't, doesn't. I can't draw, I can't, I can't pick the metaphor that's not crass, but I, he just, he just loses it at the end. He I, just, he I, just, I, I wonder if he. It. I wonder if he doesn't have the American quality of self contempt. He's just like, well, I could write the great American novel, but you know, actually, I wasn't trying anyway. And who cares? It's just a comedy. Here you go, fellas. Uh, I would say the best of Moby Dick. Or sorry, the best of Huck Finn is the best of American novel writing. Like the best of Huck Finn is better than anything in terms of cap doing what the great American, you know. Showing America, showing the American spirit, uh, making fun of America where it deserves it. We need to come back to it. Yeah, we do. We do. That's the probably the greatest discrepancy between our episode and the book's greatness is that. Our take on Huck Finn. Our take on Huck Finn. Anna Karenanda was a pretty good episode, but 
a relatively short one that deserve that's the other discrepancy and we're rectifying that soon so i think huck finn at its best is the great american novel but i think moby dick as a cohesive work easily beats the other two and therefore is the great american novel it's my argument for what we should put in the bookening great american novel capsule i agree with your argument nathan okay all right that's two votes i can't i can't disagree with it I mean, we could put War and Peace in there if Brandon wants to be a jerk. There's an American that translated it, sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but God's constant Garnet's stupid translation uh, in there. Victorian. Yeah, that's true. She is Victorian. Get your, get your, uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I suck. That's for me. All right, guys. Well, I don't have a sound effect, but I, we do have patrons that need to be shouted out real quick. I'd be like, doi. <laughs> that's the sound effect for patrons. Listen, how do you become a patron of the bookening? What you need is money to baptize a harpoon in blood. Right. You know, know, I was just talking to Nathan here. Oh, Oh, what I need, like sound effect wise? Yeah, you just need a Frankenstein and Dracula button. Okay. Yeah, then I could just do it without you. Yeah. See, I always have this hope that you guys won't do Frankenstein and Dracula. That's my, my white whale is. (laughs) (laughs) That's your Ahab's madness. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Prepare to, to, Swim with the fishes, buddy. <laughs> Fine. Going to the heart of the sea. All right. I'd like you to know. What you have to do is you have to go to yes. patreon.com forward slash the bookening. And for as little as the price of a cup of coffee, you can get access to all kinds of great behind the scenes content and more, especially if you sign up at the $25 a month level or $50 a month level. $25 a month gets you the end of year bookening t-shirt along with access to all of our behind the scenes content. a month is probably the best prize that we offer. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) $50 a month basically gets you in the book club. Mm -hmm. We send you personalized copies, hand signed by all three of us, me and Brandon and Nathan. Right, Brandon? That's right. (laughs) Of every book that we read on the bookening and you get it in plenty of time to read along with us. And so that one's cool. And we give, uh, high quality nice copies so it's a great way to sort of support the show while passively building your library and being able to read along with us in our book club so patreon.com for us and then hundred dollars a month you get to pick a book yeah so pretty good deal i mean for just a hundred bucks a month we've all got that none of us are suffering from the putin price hike the dreaded putin price hike no, none of us. <laughs> no, mateys. <laughs> From hell's heart we stab Brandon is fat. Okay, <laughs> guys, <laughs> it just makes for such good podcast punctuation. It's really growing on me. I like the voice that I did. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. I, I think our fans are glad that they got to hear it thousands of times. What we like to do for our, our donors, as Jake alluded to, is shout them out if you... That's the one level I didn't know. Oh, yeah, you got to... This is $10 a month level. Yeah, and then you get a donor shout out. $10 a month gets you a donor shout out. And so, yeah, $25. Our most popular level. Including mm-hmm. that. $50 gets you that too. Yeah. Is it more popular than the... Well, of course it is. Yeah, it's cheaper. It's not $50. Yeah, that's right. $50. $30 a month, you know? But so. a significant portion of these donor shout outs are people who are supporting at that $50 level. Yes. Yeah. If you guys could both describe the personality of your wives uh, with a character from literature, <laughs> let's say, <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> so I will shout out the donor and then Jake can go and we can alternate. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Frankenstein. The artful Anthony Dodger. 
Dracula. <laughs> it's true that Jake's wife is a lumbering monster and uh, Brandon's wife's a real bloodsucker. <laughs> gotcha. I wish I had a rim shot. I don't. I guess crickets will do. <laughs> little Anthony's Cigar Store. Frankenstein. The Immortal Chelsea E. Dracula. Jimmy Beaver and Little Annie Oakley. Frankenstein. Lily of the Valley. Dracula. Anthony and Esther the Lumpers. The Keith Master. Dracula. John and Joe Little Baby Max. Dracula. <laughs> How does that end? Uh, Jane and Katie were cold in love cheese and also C.S. Lewis including Will We Have Faces? Frankenstein. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Beth? Dracula. Cons Prime Adam? Frankenstein. Neither not me. Dracula. And the Red Avenger to do the Ladies of Justice. DJ Sammy G. Denny and Denny. Eric and Catherine from Yon. Window Breaks. Professor Lady X. Lavender's green. Dylan Dylan. Lavender's blue. Lavender's green. Dylan Dylan. I love you too. Frankenstein. No constrictor. Dracula. The Marachip. The fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. Dracula. Anthony is golden hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese and brick red. Dracula. She was just the Jeffrey the Texas Ranger. From? I don't remember. So many of these things have like they're they're like snowballs. They just accumulate a little bit as they go. Okay. Jujitsu Jeffrey the Texas Dracula. Ranger. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Dracula. Return of the Dudadaya. Did he get a signed brick red when we were doing our Crayola colors or something like that? It's possible. Came back and was like, hey, yeah, hey, I don't hey, like brick hey, red. Right. Eh, you guys suck. Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, shut up, Anthony. You're you hate red. life and liberty and the pursuit of cheese. And brick red. And brick red. You're yeah. going to be brick dead if you don't <laughs> <laughs> shut your brick trap Frankenstein if you don't shut your Frankenstein <laughs> Dracula, Dracula. <laughs> shut your Frankenstein Dracula <laughs> folks we've been doing this podcast basically in real time so we've been at it now for three and a half hours our brains are broken this is like the old days remember when we used to record a month's worth of episodes all at once yes and now we still do that because we do one episode a month <laughs> good job the fair and fragrant maiden no I said her jiu-jitsu Jeffrey the Texas Ranger I said him Midnight Ninja Ellen Frankenstein Return of the Jedediah Frankenstein Jay of Rack and Ruin Frankenstein Timothy the Writer Don Frankenstein Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings who are warm love bees Dracula Maddie 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 Matt Man Frankenstein Dracula. That's okay. We're almost halfway done. <laughs> Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Dracula. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. Dracula. Lord of the Keeper of Eternal Dracula. 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 Cold Steel Coat. Jackal the Librarian Barbarian. John Bombadilla Bombadilla. And Captain Turner. Who's me? Dracula. Saxophone Alex. The other saxophone Alex and Dubstep Danny. Frankenstein. Ryan, the Terror of Texas and Aircraft the Cream when he comes in. Who no longer are stuck in the cold but please do send cheese. Dracula. Frankenstein. If and Kylo Ren. Dracula. John, the Cosmic King of Chaos. Dracula. Matthew, the Mind Flayer. Dracula. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Dracula. The Flight of the Valerie. Dracula. Thor Ragnarok. Dracula. Stephen. Dracula. on. Dracula. Christopher, the Flower Hulk. Dracula. Lady of the Crystal Lake. Frankenstein. Ian, the Death Lord of Death. Dracula. Emily H., the Hunter of Dreams. Dracula. <laughs> All about the Benjamin. Dracula. The Mysterious Phantom. Dracula. Jeremy, the Dark Hooded Lord of Death, and his brooding bride, oh, Maya. 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 Remains of the J. Dracula. Abraham, the, or Abram, the Puller of Teeth. Dracula. <laughs> La Morte de Trenton. Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Just gave up on these names. <laughs> no, no, no. We didn't give up on this last one. Daniel. A man among men, and Jen, who strikes again every now and then. <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> How'd I not heard that one before? <laughs>
<laughs> Daniel, a man among men, and Jen, who strikes again every now and then. <sighs> Jake's figured out where my crickets button are. I need like a glass wall between the other hosts. <laughs> One that we can't hear. I don't remember whether we've actually said hi to Daniel and Jen before. I don't hi. know. Hi. I don't yeah, know whether we just did. Hi, I don't, Daniel. Hi, Jen. Hi, welcome. I don't know whether we came up with that together. Or I just jotted it down with an idea. As Pretty an idea. sure you just jotted that down. I don't have any memory of having any part in that one. Oh, oh yeah. But I have very little memory. So much of memory of, of Remains of, of the Jay and La Morte de Trenton. And uh-huh. <laughs> <sighs> Fine work, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything else to say, Brandon, before we see people next month? No, nothing else to say. We're not going to see them. All right. Okay, then we're They're going to hear us and we're not going to hear anything about them. That's right. Yeah. They listen to us. We don't listen to them. That's true. They don't have podcasts I listen to. Yeah. And if they did have podcasts, you wouldn't listen to them. Probably not. <laughs> you hate our fans. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>